Welcome to Pick Me Up, I'm Scared, the podcast. I'm your host, Madeline. And I'm your co-host, David. And today we are talking about... A punk rock icon. A punk rock icon. I will say that. I think that's true. Yeah. But before we get into it, we got to do our little housekeeping. So to start things off, um, over on our Patreon, we have been doing some supplemental bonus material. Mm -hmm. And I can't say what the one we just uploaded is without telling you what this week's episode is about, which you probably read the title. So you already know. Yeah. We're talking about Ronald Reagan. And on, over on Patreon... We're talking about Nancy Reagan. The real power. The real Ronald. Yeah. Yeah, she's real evil, I think. She, she, as the saying goes, wore the thrift store pants. She wore the thrift store pants in the relationship. This is accurate, I think. Uh, yeah, so that's what we got going over on our Patreon. So, if you are a Patreon subscriber, we recommend listening to that one first so you get a little background going into this. And if you are not a Patreon subscriber, this episode will still make sense to you. But it is only $3 to register for our Patreon, and you get at least two bonus episodes per month. Uh, another thing to do housekeeping on is the book. I have, I'm have i looking at 100 copies of my own book right I'm now. I'm looking at a copy right now. The cover is amazing. Uh, yes, my friend Lizzie took the picture. And your author, Fozo, amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, the book is officially out by the time you guys listen to this tomorrow. Some people say that their pre-orders are already shipping to them. Oh, great. Yeah, very, very exciting. And um, I don't know if I mentioned this, but my mother's mother already wrote an angry letter to my publisher, so it's juicy. It's great. The, there's gossip. There's some hot gossip in here, apparently, uh, that my mother is not too happy with. She hasn't read the book. She just didn't like the description of the book. She just didn't like that there is a book. She just didn't like that there is a book. I think that's it. Uh, the letter, though, humorously, that her mother wrote to my publisher was that I was a liar... Uh, because it says on the book jacket that I grew up broke, but my mom's family was solidly middle class. And this is funny to anybody who knows me, because my dad raised me the first 12 years of my life, not my mom. I will say, I have joked about you that when you did live with your mom, I thought you were pretty rich because you had fast internet, which, for younger listeners... Yeah, that was something you had to pay more for, that's true. Yeah. Uh, we had a pool. You had a pool. It was a nice house. It was a great house. It was a great house. It wasn't like... Crazy. You no, know, it wasn't crazy. It was, but for Fresno, for south Fresno, of Shaw, and with me, with my teacher parents, yeah, this was bananas. Yeah, this was a very impressive house. Um, one story, four bedrooms, two baths. Yeah, kind very, of seventies, not very, like remodeled or anything like that, but California ranch style. California ranch style. Um, yeah, but it did have the pool, but mm-hmm. I didn't swim at all. But you know. It was fine. It was a nice house. Uh, instead of a dining room table, we had a pool table. I do remember that. Yeah, it was a little weird, right? Where did people eat? Uh, nobody ate in that house. That makes sense. It does make sense, unfortunately. Um, yeah. So yes, that is the hot drama and gossip with the book. My mother's mother apparently forgot that my father raised me in my childhood and wrote a very angry letter. Uh, saying that she and her daughter were not poor, which was funny because I heard that and I was like, oh, that's really funny because, uh, yeah, dad was the one who took care of me. And also, why didn't she pay him child support then, huh? What's yeah, what's the deal? What's the deal with that? So anyway, there is some there is some drama in the book. If you like drama, it's there. I am going on the book tour this week, Friday, January 19th. I will be in Chicago at Everybody's Coffee presented by the bookseller, C-E-L-L-A-R. Uh, Saturday the 20th, I will be in Dallas, Texas at Enterabang Books. 
Uh, Sunday the 21st, I will be in Austin, Texas at Book People. Monday the 22nd, I will be back home in Los Angeles at Barnes & Noble at The Grove. This is where I'm frightened my mother might actually show up. And if that's the case, I'm showing up too. Yes. David at first was going to show up to watch the encounter. You had to goad me into volunteering to fight your mom, which yes. I would also lose. Yes, so. we did decide that. Yeah, you would lose. But you could at least try. I'll, like, gesture it fighting your mom. You're not going to hit my mom? I, no, I'm not going to hit your mom. Well, I feel like you're not really a ride or die for me then. And uh, okay. now I know where we stand. At least I, yeah. I know. At least I, I know. Um, Wednesday, the 24th, I will be in Portland, Oregon at Powell's. And for those of you who are members of our Patreon, we do have a link where you can purchase the book from Powell's in a way that supports their strike fund. Yep. Yes, which is great. Uh, again, I don't have control over where I go, the people they send me. Then on Thursday the 25th, I will be in Seattle at Elliott Bay Book Company. So that's it. That's the tour. And then I'll be back. So if you want, you can still pre-order my book. Any orders that come in the first week count towards my numbers. And it's I'm told it's very important, the pre-orders and the first week sales. And if we do well enough, we can debut on like a bestsellers list. Oh, you'll be, you'll get the sticker. There's a sticker? Like the New York Times bestseller oh, list Oh, yeah. That's... That's it's, major. It's a shame that you are publishing this book now as opposed to when Oprah's Book Club was oh, around. Oh, was a thing, yeah. yeah. We did get a book club that picked it up. I oh, don't really? remember the name of it, but they bought 100 copies, so that was cool. That's awesome. Yes. So, um, I have been told that our publisher has contacted the New York Times to track us for bestsellers, so there's a chance mm -hmm. we might make it. That's exciting. Yeah. So we're at the low threshold of potentially being able... I think they say, like, if you pre-sell, like, six to 10,000 books, there's a chance you'll be on the bestsellers list. Mm -hmm. And we're over 6,000, so... That's exciting. Every book counts. If you're thinking of buying, please buy it this week. Uh, there's an audiobook component as well. So that is what I've got here. I'm looking at my notes. I guess, pre-order, yes. On track, maybe, to debut at bestsellers. Yes. My mother is mad. Yes. Hit it all. Yeah. We hit it all. All right. So... That's all out of the way. Let's get into, yeah, our discussion of this 80s punk rock icon. Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan. Uh, David, before we get into Ronald Reagan and his life, did you have any preconceived notions about Reagan? What were your feelings? What were we vibing on Reagan? I mean, I knew he was bad. Mm -hmm. That I was, I had that much knowledge. No, I mean, I knew about, like, Iran-Contra. Um, I, my dad when i was a kid was perpetually grumpy because uh reagan had cut funding for the park service and oh. he my dad had been a trail builder in yosemite Got it. and lost his job and so anytime ronald reagan came up he would go that guy lost me a fucking job okay curse word in your house and then storm off yes yeah yeah interesting um i don't think i knew much about reagan in my personal life just with the punk songs told me about him yeah, I remember Ian MacKay some, in some interview as a thing where he's like, I resisted the impulse to put Reagan's name in a song. Um, <laughs> because it seems like every damn band was doing it. Everyone. And we were thinking about it. It was Reagan Youth. Reagan Youth. Uh, we Are the Sons of Reagan. Oh, yeah. That was their song. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, There's JFA, which we'll talk about later. JFA, famously Suicidal Tendencies, I Shot Reagan. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. There's Murphy's Law, California Pipeline. I like Reagan. He's the man. Oh, if okay. he can't do it, no one can. Yes, yes, yes. I'm drawing yeah. a blank right now on songs. I feel like all of them are about him, and now I'm thinking about it, and I'm like, no. We've Got Bigger Problems Now is... Uh, 
obvious by the Dead Kennedys. I was gonna say there's probably yeah. like 85 Dead Kennedy songs. Yeah, that's the one that stands out to me. Also, because that's the one that has the N word in it. Oh, it's uh, a bad one. Yeah, it's the one we're not allowed to play at work. Uh, but which is very clearly about Reagan. Um, and it's like a, it's an update of California Uber Alice. Yes, because I was gonna say what I think about, and the reason why I get stuck is because I think about Governor Jerry Brown. Yeah. In California Uber Alice, but it's not. It's Governor Reagan. So then I just get like stuck in this like mm-hmm. thought cycle. Also, there's another Dead Kennedy song with the N word. Oh. Holiday yeah. in Cambodia. Oh. Which is also yeah. kind of a Reagan song. Yeah. It is a Reagan song, actually. Mm-hmm. Um. Yes. So that's kind of yeah. I think like. We were born in the 80s, so our exposure to Reagan was his aftermath. His aftermath, uh, we grew up with the quote-unquote war on drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I definitely remember hearing stuff about that San Jose Tribune article that came out about... San Jose Mercury. Mercury, yep. there we go. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maybe it's called the Mercury Tribune. Sure. Yes. Uh, which, to this day, I can't remember the reporter's name, you can remind Gary me. Webb, I think Gary Webb. Name? To this day, anytime anything hap- like comes up about Gary Webb, who is dead, yes. uh, the Washington Post puts out an article being like, this guy was a bad journalist. It's really? Like, yeah, it's like crazy. Whoa. Especially like, wild if you know about how like uh, the CIA, Operation Mockingbird, the Wurlitzer, that you know the Washington Post was one of the publications that they would push false information out through. And that there are a lot of connections between CIA and Washington Post. Yep. 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 Very interesting. Okay, so we grew up knowing Reagan Badman. We grew up mm-hmm. seeing some of the ways in which Reagan was a bad man play out in our life all around us. And there are some stories I think we knew. We knew about Iran-Contra, mm-hmm. obviously. Uh, we knew about the Pol Pot thing, probably. Pol Pot, yeah. you, you knew about the Pol Pot thing, yeah. Uh, but there was some more stuff about Reagan that I really didn't know. So today's episode is going to be a part one of a two-parter. And we are going to be discussing uh, Ronald Reagan up through his California governorship. And the next episode, which will come out next week, is going to be about his presidential years. The punk rock years. The punk rock years, if you will. Um, so we're going to start out with Ronald Reagan's childhood, baby Reagan. He was, he did not have a happy childhood. He didn't. So we're talking like 1911 to 1924 here. So Ronald Reagan was born in 1911, February 6th to be exact, in Tampico, Illinois. And I did do his birth chart because I think it's fun to do the birth charts of the bad people. I mean, also, Ronald Reagan probably did his birth chart or had an astrologer do it. Definitely. Nancy was all about the birth charts. His wife was really into astrology. So what Ronald Reagan probably knew, and Nancy definitely knew, and we're learning now, is that Ronald Reagan uh, is an Aquarius with a Taurus moon and a Gemini rising. Madeline, what does that mean? Um, I don't know what the Aquarius means. I know the Taurus moon, I think, means you're stubborn in some way. And the Gemini rising, I think most of the serial killers are Geminis. Granting his death toll... Yes, qualifies, maybe. I do know that I have a friend who's a Gemini, and she follows an Instagram account called Not All Geminis, and uh-huh. she thinks it's very funny, so... That makes sense. It's our shared friend. It's Camilla. Oh, Camilla. Yes, yeah, so I think there's something about Geminis. People love to hate mm-hmm. them. Um, for our astrology buffs out there, also, his Mercury is in Capricorn, and I do know what that means. What does that mean? Stubborn in warfare and love. He was stubborn in both warfare and love. I agree with that. Yeah. I, I think that's correct. Feel free to correct me if I got Astrology that wrong. gets one right again. Yeah, I don't really know much about astrology, so if I interpreted that wrong, please tell me. Um, in the Q&A on the episode for Spotify. Uh, 
He uh, was a second child. He had an older brother named Neil Reagan, which we kind of lose track of. We don't hear much about Neil. Neil's the, he's the ad exec who ends up working for the FBI. Oh, that's right. We do hear about him. They meet at, I can't remember the name, we'll get to it, the weirdest burger joint to discuss their FBI findings. I totally forgot about that. Um, yeah, you know what happened is that it, when it was written, it was like he was a frat bro, so I thought they were like bros from the fraternity, but no, he was his brother and he was in a frat. No, no. Also Reagan's frat bro. Two different guys. Both of them? Yeah. Whoa. Reagan's FBI'd up. Yeah, he's, okay, he's FBI'd up. All right, so this is interesting because Reagan does not, is not born connected, okay? His dad, John Edward Jack Reagan, was a struggling shoe salesman. Uh, he was an alcoholic. He had a hard time holding down a job. The family moved around a lot. Jack switched jobs a lot. And one anecdote that everybody brings up that I like, can't understand the significance of is that he called Ronald Fat Little Dutchman as the, a baby, as a term of endearment. There's even a thing, like there's a famous picture of Ronald Reagan from when he was uh, a radio broadcaster calling like Cubs games, um, where it's like Reagan, Fat Little Dutchman haircut that you see over and over again. It's very interesting. I don't understand it. Um, yeah, his dad, though, famously was a liberal Democrat. Very, like, was, New Deal. Like the like Roosevelt Coalition of sort of, like, working class folks. Yeah, his mother also, Nell Wilson Reagan, was, a, you know, a, a Democrat, a staunch Democrat. And they, we talked about this in the Nancy Reagan bonus episode, but they were, like... Uh, I would say anti-racist. Like, they were aware of racism. They talked about racism. They were like, racism, bad. Yeah, and early in his life, Ronald Reagan was a civil rights guy. Yeah. Yeah. He really was. So he was raised to be this kind of left-leaning Democrat who cared about people, who believed in social programs, who thought racism was bad and evil, and wanted to uplift and support people. And, you know, we see this huge change happen over the course of his life. And we'll talk about that as we move through it. But when Reagan was born, yeah, his family was definitely poor. They lived in an apartment that lacked indoor plumbing and running water. Though, I gotta say, my grandpa was born probably around the same time. About a decade later. Yeah. No indoor plumbing. Really? Yeah. He uh, he famously has an anecdote about pushing over an outhouse and realizing that someone was in it. Oh! I don't know that my grandpa ever had an anecdote like that. My grandpa was a weird guy. Yeah, very interesting. I, now I'm like, did my grandparents not have indoor plumbing and we just didn't talk about it? I feel like it was like the least, in, like my grandpa was just sort of like, yeah, it was normal. Okay, interesting. All right, that's good context to have. So David, you know some other stuff about his mom and dad that were interesting. Yeah, so his mother was a member of this sort of Catholic charity organization called the Disciples of Christ uh, and volunteered often. They were very much Irish Catholic Roosevelt Democrats. Uh, His father, as you mentioned, was an alcoholic. Most memorably, when Ronald was 11, he returned home from a YMCA basketball game to discover his father had passed out in the snow outside of their Dixon, Illinois home. As Reagan later recalled, he was drunk, dead to the world, crucified, and Reagan had to pull him inside so he didn't freeze to death in the snow. Yeah. Um, So rough, rough upbringing. Rough. Yeah, and uh, that whole Dixon, Illinois thing, yeah, in 1920, his family did settle in Dixon, because remember, his dad was bouncing around a lot trying to find a job, and they actually lived at 816 South Hennepin Avenue, which uh, was eventually authorized by Congress to become the official Ronald Reagan boyhood home. Oh, so is there like a museum there or something? Probably. Yeah. I just think the term boyhood home is interesting. I hope to one day be 
at a stage in my life in which the Lansing house in Fresno, California. Is David Roberts' boyhood home. Yeah. The last time I saw it was boarded up. So Really? Yeah. Wow. I feel like I drove by it a couple months ago. Oh. But it's kind of hard because, like, all of those houses look so similar. They just have really tall trees. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. So, Dixon was a small town. It currently has a population of around 15,000 people. It was obviously way smaller back then. But Reagan says this was the happiest period of his life. And I think this is really interesting, the irony of Reagan growing up poor, knowing now how much he harmed and fucked over the poor in his life almost like it was a mission to hurt the poor yeah it's funny like whenever you run across sort of like conservative hagiographies of reagan they talk about this as like some like they try to do it like make it real positive but there's a lot of like no he saw the bad behavior and wantonness of the poor and hated it (laughs) The bootstrap thing. Yeah. He's like, I will not be poor. I will mm-hmm. do it. Uh, it's really interesting. Um, yeah, we talked about this in the Nancy Reagan bonus episode, but it does feel like his main thing is that Reagan is a man without an ideology. Yeah, he's just... He's, he's going with the flow. Whatever whatever the main currents and like people's thinking are, which like New Deal Democrats were extraordinarily popular. That was the political power center of the day it makes sense that he would have been like, yeah, this makes sense. Right. He's not thinking too critically about anything. So anything is around, anything he's exposed to, he's going to pick up. And this is what he was exposed to in his childhood. So we get to his adolescent years, maybe 1925 to 1932. This is when Reagan was around 14 to 21 years old. And his teenage, year, teenage years in high school, he lifeguarded along the banks of the Rock River in Dixon. And it this like weird anecdote is that Dixon has been trying to build a statue of him as a lifeguard there since 2016. But it just like keeps keeps not happening and they're like somebody's got to come really push through this statue plan man wait is it because the the nature is rejecting reagan that would seem (laughs) natural yeah no it's not i think it's just like the budget never gets approved or they don't find a person to do it and then nobody really cares enough to like babysit it and make sure it happens and then a few years later everybody's always like hey what happened to that reagan lifeguard statue that was there are federal spending cuts that seem to affect the municipal government in adverse ways and they can't do large civil projects that they otherwise would have right i wonder who could have started the trend that led to that I, I can't think of anyone. If only we should... Actually, the absence of the Reagan statue is a better statue. Yeah. That is more appropriate. That's a better tribute to him. It's fitting. Yeah. So, in 1928, Reagan graduated high school, and he enrolled in Eureka College in Eureka, Illinois. And he had been popular in high school. Like, he played football. He was active in the drama society. He was class president. And he was pretty popular in college as well. So in 1932, he graduated college with a bachelor's degree in economics and sociology. And that same year, he supported Franklin Roosevelt for office. And he has this weird story that he brings up again and again in a lot of speeches where he talks about how during the Depression, the professors would go without pay for several months. And he's saying this like, this is great. This is wonderful. As opposed to like something fucked up happened. Oh, yeah, he's like, the, like the austerity thing, yeah. like it's, like, it's biblical. Yeah. It's like you go without and that proves your, your morality and your righteousness. 
But, you know, at this time, he did absorb the political leanings of his father, obviously, and his father even would later find work as an administrator in a New Deal office established in the Dixon area. And even when Reagan's political uh, leanings and affiliations totally changed, he still did look at that program and be like, well, that was an objectively good thing because my dad found a job. So this is what we mean when we say, like, he's not he's not a man with, like, a strong ideology. He's just kind of going with whatever he's exposed to. This is, I mean... Kissinger was kind of going to like Kissinger at least made a stab at having an ideology right and the ideology was status quo good yeah yeah but I did think about Kissinger a lot when looking Mm -hmm. at this because you know there's there is something to be said for people like I think for for Reagan at first he fell into his political ideologies and leanings from people around him and then his political actions often did not line up with his stated values especially when he was governor and he was still figuring it out and it's literally a competency issue like i don't think he was competent enough to be as evil as he had intended when he was governor (laughs) so but for a little bit more political savvy the world would just be worse yeah i think california would be worse definitely oh california would be in the ocean yeah yeah uh so i think that this is like a really interesting thing about him and i think that him being like well, it's good, though. The New Deal was good, though, because my dad got a job. But it's like, okay, but you can't expand that to be like, when you have social safety nets and social spending and government spending, everyone's dad could have a job. And he's like, absolutely fucking not. It sounds like communism. Hate it. So Some people, maybe everyone's dad is not asleep in the snow. Kind right. Of thing. So yeah. just his dad. Yeah, maybe. Um, so it's really interesting. He leaves college and he gets into sports broadcasting. Because remember, he was in the Drama Society and he played football. So this makes sense. Yeah, he apparently called early Cubs games when radio broadcasting was like a new thing. And so he got known for that. Yes, exactly. From the ages of like 22 to 25, he got this job in radio broadcasting. And he was uh, working as a sportscaster at a station in Davenport, Iowa. And he got hired because he delivered entirely from memory a play-by-play description of a Eureka College football game. So yeah, when he moved to... Iowa, then he moved to Des Moines shortly after, and that's where he was called Dutch Reagan. Oh. Based off of that fat little Dutchman nickname. Glad that one stuck. <laughs> I bet he loved that. Uh, Dutchman. Little Dutchman. I'm sure he, he loves his later nickname more. <laughs> Which one? Gipper. Oh, yeah. Gipper. Yeah, he's got a lot of weird nicknames. Yeah. Um, so he got really popular there for his broadcast he would do of these Chicago Cubs games, but the station couldn't afford to send him to Wrigley Field in Chicago, so he would improvise these running accounts of the games based on sketchy details that were delivered over a teletype machine. So he's, he's doing improv. Yeah. Yeah, he's an actor. He's a yes and guy. He's a yes Actually, and Actually, in more ways than one. That is so true. That's the best way to sum up Reagan. He's yeah. a yes and guy. Uh, also around this time, he also en- enlists in the private as a private in the Army Reserve. Yeah, and so while in a training mission or a training camp on Catalina Island, he sneaks away from a screen test and is signed by Warner Brothers for a seven-year contract. His first movie, Love is in the Air, is about a radio broadcaster who runs afoul of local powers uh, through his expose of corruption and gets sort of sent to a children's television show where he solves a murder. Interesting. I mean, this is really interesting, one, because it's a lot, it's based on what Reagan used to do. He was a sports broadcaster, right? But also a lot of his movies are like these, espousing these like values and points that are so the opposite of what he later ends up doing. It's like, he ends up being one of the most corrupt presidents that we know of. Yeah, well, you cannot do like a feel-good story 
where like the corrupt city boss is the good guy like that no one like no one's like oh man who's the villain from it's a wonderful life oh yeah the um who the is Hoover he? The, yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Like, no one's like, oh, man, I really want to see, like, the Hoover biopic. Right. I mean, you can you can do that in politics in real life, though. Yeah. Like, Reagan is still a hero even in real life, even though he was the bad guy. People are like, he's a hero. Yay. Uh, yeah, so he started getting into acting in 1937, right? He, he was 26 years old. He followed the Cubs to their spring training camp in Southern California. And that is where he snuck away to go do a screen test. And it went really well. And this did launch his acting career, yes. Um, he got signed, because at that time, the movie studios would sign you into a contract with them to make movies. And he ended up starring in more than 50 films over the next 27 years. Most of which are bad. Yes, they're bad. These are B movies. And he gets kind of typecast as sincere, wholesome, easygoing, good guy. I think he does not have range. Like, this is the... I watched Brother Rat. Did you? Yeah. You committed. I commit. It is painful yeah brother rat is a movie he stars in pretty early in his career in 1938 the year after he gets kind of signed and picked up and it's an action comedy about roommates at the virginia military institute yeah there's a lot of like it would be innuendo if it were about it's like someone wants to be alone to propose marriage and keeps hinting at it Uh, i don't it's bad i think to this whole thing about him getting typecast as like a sincere, wholesome, easygoing, good guy. It's like, that's the role he plays in politics later, too. This is just who he plays. I think, I mean, it might just be who, like, he doesn't, I'm not saying he's a sincere, easygoing guy. I would say, though, that he is easygoing, and that's why he Mm -hmm. ends up absorbing like a sponge the ideologies of all the people that are around him later. Who suck. Yeah, who are bad people. So I think that this does kind of check out. But on the set of this movie, Brother Rat, 1938, he meets his co-star, Jane Wyman, and they become engaged. Mm-hmm. So the following year, 1939, World War II breaks out. And David, what happens? Uh, so Reagan, he's still in Army Reserve, and he's initially called up for active duty, but Warner Brothers protests and requests a deferment for or Reagan because it would constitute a significant financial loss. However... At the advice of a former FBI agent, William Guthrie, and there's this really funny story where William Guthrie was in the FBI for two years, maybe less than that. So random. And then he got kicked out because he was so willing to accept graft. Uh, (laughs) uh, So, but Warner Brothers hires this guy to go talk to General Peak, who is stationed at Presidio in San Francisco. Yes, familiar. Um, After this meeting... Reagan's enlistment is deferred twice before he's finally settled at Fort Roach. It's said that it's because he's nearsighted or some shit like that, but it's very clear that, like, some graft is going on. Right, he's an actor making money for Warner Brothers, and Warner Brothers, maybe, maybe not, is greasing some palms to make sure they don't lose their guy. And one source claims that Guthrie, the former FBI agent, uh, was just passing out military convention or commissions left and right to like movie studios and stuff at the time. But he makes, I think, over 400 training films for the military while he's there. Yeah, and Reagan at this time also somehow becomes a cavalry officer. But yes, he is just assigned to an army film unit based in LA and he spends the rest of the war making these training films. He never left the country. He never saw combat. 
He and Wyman, though, did cooperate together with Warner Brothers to portray him as a real soldier to the world. Like, in the public, in newsreels, and magazine photos. He would literally act out scenes that he was going off to war and that he was coming home on leave. And years later, Reagan would literally tell people stories about how happy he was to come back from the war, which we know he didn't actually do because he never went to the war. And he said it as if it was true. And all of his accounts would just be fictional based on things he acted out in movies. Okay, I actually talked to someone about this and they floated something to me where they were like, listen, Alzheimer's, the symptoms happen before like the diagnosis. And so they were like, I think he may have just been mixing things up. Oh, that could be true, depending on yeah. when he started telling people this. I was yeah. under the impression he told people this way earlier in uh, life. Oh, yeah. But it is true that later on, Reagan does get diagnosed with Alzheimer's and his end of life. So I guess that is mm-hmm. possible. Um, so he was a propaganda tool, definitely. But this is also World War II, which I'm like, this is maybe the only justified war the United States has ever been in ever yeah, though we were not great at being in a justified war No, somehow. we were not. Um, but this propagandizing, I'm like, well, we are fighting Nazis. That's like the one good reason to be in a war, I guess. Um, but yeah, I think I, the reason why I think that he was passing this stuff off as something he actually did way earlier in life mm-hmm. is because his critics at the time, while he was president, caught on to this. And they were like, mm-hmm. this man cannot be president because he, he's either one, willfully lying, or two, there's something wrong with him and he cannot distinguish reality from fiction or he just has a blatant disregard for what the truth is and is comfortable inventing the truth as he goes no i think that was why my friend was like i think he just because they they suspect that his alzheimer's started way earlier right Um, and he was a pretty old president that is true so in 1940 reagan and jane wyman get married in hollywood and this is the same year he stars in newt rockney all american uh and this is a biographical movie about notre dame's football coach newt rockney so we see these kind of movies he's starring in, right? They're Americana vibes. They're apple pie, hot dogs, very USA. Yeah. At some point he does say that he believed that the entire reason he came to Hollywood was to promote the Newt Rockney story, which is weird. That is weird, but kind of checks out to me. Appar- yeah. Apparently the studios didn't buy him as like a former football player even. Like he plays the coach in the movie. But so he showed them his old football like pictures from his college days. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And he, he his role in this is not Newt Rockney, It is George Gipp. And he's Actually, this is probably one of his better-known movies because it does earn him an actual nickname, the Gipper, later on in life from a line taken in the movie where he says, win one for the Gipper. And so in the movie, he is playing a coach with some sort of fatal illness. And so the football team, the Notre Dame football team has to win one more game for the For the Gipper. For him, yeah. yeah. And this comes up later on, too, when we're talking about his political campaigns. He, like, everybody knows he was an actor. He comes back to this. So in 1941, he and Wyman have a daughter, Maureen. She's born January 4th. And the following year, he stars in this movie, King's Row, which is also, like, one movie of note. He's starring in a lot of movies, but just, like, some of them stick a little better than the others. None of them are great. And King's Row is described as friends from both sides of the tracks living in the village of King's Row looking for love despite the barriers of family and class. It's just so funny because I'm like, all of this guy's movies are about being the kind of person that would be a victim of Ronald Reagan later. Yeah, this also does include the very, very famous line which you encounter again. Ronald Reagan named one of his early autobiographies after this, 
where he has his legs amputated by like a nefarious surgeon at one point and wakes up and shouts where's the rest of me oh that's right yeah i do remember hearing about that very these are not good movies he is in he is not an a-lister um and the following year 1943 reagan has his first official contact with the fbi and this is where the two bro- the frat brother and the real brother come in, right? Yeah, so one of his uh, frat bros was an FBI agent who who pointed out that Reagan might be amenable to being approached. Also, his brother, Neil, was working for an ad agency uh, and was an informer for the FBI. There's a story about him taking down license plate numbers outside of some Bel Air home, presumably for a political meeting. And the FBI agent later claims that he told Neil, if you saw us, no, you didn't, or something like that, which is very, like, 40s film noir. It really is. Yeah, that's funny. So the FBI does start enlisting him for all these, like, weird kind of activities to help them out. And... By this point, he's been assigned to the Army Air Corps Motion Picture Unit to make some more propaganda films. And he also tells a story about how he nearly got into a fistfight with a Nazi at a cocktail party. Yeah, is this the one where he hears someone saying something anti-Semitic? Yeah, and he's like, I'm gonna fight ya! Which is maybe the best Reagan's ever been, is this cocktail party. I think it really is. Reagan really went into this cocktail party in punch a Nazi mode. Yeah. And I'm here for it. But I I think this story is interesting because you really see how far he comes like how far he falls he all of whatever ideals he has about the world he's about to get knocked out of him real fast so 1946 uh they adopt his son michael a few days after he's born and this is the same year that reagan receives a contract with warner brothers for seven years uh the value of which would be the equivalent of more than 20 million dollars in today's money so these bad b movies and propaganda films are paying the bills so this is around the time that World War II is going on. J. Edgar Hoover has initiated an investigation of communist infiltration of the motion picture industry, sometimes called Compic. Which is a really snappy name for it. It's Com-pick, great. I like it. Uh, to determine the extent of communist penetration of film industries. And here's, the, here's how Ronald Reagan really gets involved. So after an Army Air Corps FBI basketball game, uh, Reagan gets in a car with an FBI agent named Thomas Dewey to drive home, uh, and says that he met, or I'm, uh, an FBI agent, uh, to inform on Thomas Dewey of New York, then campaigning for president, and Dewey had at some point vowed to lock up J. Edgar Hoover. Um, in 1946, the FBI's L.A. office begins turning up Reagan's name in connection with something called the Committee for Democratic Far East Policy, a group which had opposed Truman's support for Chiang Kai-shek's Kuomintang, a nationalist Chinese party. Also on the list were Edward G. Robinson's of, like, famous, like, gangster movies from the 30s. Oh, okay. And Gregory Peck, who was, like, a... Like a he was heart- famous. I know his name. He was, like, a heartthrob. Yeah, yeah. Uh... Uh, Additionally, Reagan was a member of the Independent Citizens Committee of the Arts and Sciences and Professions. They got them all in there. Yeah, Uh, professions. You got art, you got science, you got jobs. Let's get in there. Yeah. Uh, Basically, a group made up of New Deal Roosevelt Democrats who advocated international nuclear cooperation as well as international peace. The 
They also opposed Truman's aggressive stance towards the Soviet Union, as well as his accommodation to racists within the Democratic Party, which was a big thing with Truman. Yeah. Uh, like Southern Democrats. As J. Edgar Hoover put it, every endorsement for public office they've made in the state coincides exactly with that of the Communist Party. So this is like really to summarize this then, uh, Reagan's name gets turned up as a potential commie. Yeah. Or like, a commie sympathizer at the least. He's like... And, like, again, the thing is, I don't think that he's, like, got a thought in his head about any of this shit. No, he's I think just it's just, like, like racism's this is where bad. I think it's even, like, I think it's just, like, this is where the cool guys are. Yeah, this is like, where this Edward is G. Do. Robinson is. Right, like, Gregory Peck is here, yeah. Um, in 46, agents visit Reagan and Wyman at their home in Hollywood, telling Reagan the following... We thought some of those com um, someone that the communists hate as much as they hate you might be willing to uh, help us. Basically, the agents tell him that they had heard on a wiretap that a bunch of communists at a Hollywood party were talking shit about him and that they were going to quote get the bastard. Um, and we don't think this is true. No, this is this is just them trying to manipulate Reagan. Yeah, so they basically said. All your friends are talking shit about you. They're all communists. They're all communists. Help us out. Uh, after that, Reagan begins meeting regularly with FBI agents to inform on his fellow actors and friends. After a meeting of the Independent Citizens Committee of Arts and Sciences and, and professions, professions, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Reagan accompanies Dory Sherry and Olivia de Havilland to a meeting to discuss possible communist infiltration. Apparently, de Havilland said to Reagan, I thought you were a communist, and Reagan says to de Havilland, I thought you were a communist. Um, they decide to propose a resolution. We reaffirm the belief in free enterprise and the democratic system and repudiate communism as desirable for the United States, which is a real... It's like a... It's like a nothing. It's a nothing. It's a nothing thing to say. Uh, in order to catch out suspected communists, several, including screenwriter Dalton Trumbo and composer Artie Shaw, object to the resolution, probably because it sounded dumb. Yeah, it's pretty silly. It's like... It, it's like the hello fellow kids of communism. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so, oh, this is the thing. The Reagan brothers meet at a nut burger at, like, midnight on Sunset and Doheny in Hollywood uh, to discuss their findings. This is, like, you can't... If they had made this a movie, it would have done better than every movie Ronald Reagan has ever been in. Yeah. Because this is so silly. I really do think it's funny, though, that Reagan was just like, I'm a lefty-leaning guy. I am not opposed to communism. And then the FBI shows up and is like, really? Because we heard the communists were making fun of you and they had a party and they didn't invite you. And then Reagan's like, oh! <gasps> They're so mean. I hate them. I hate communism. And this, like, really changed the trajectory of Reagan's life. No, in that autobiography, uh, Where's the Rest of Me, he has this line where he's like, that really, I, they really got to me. I was so shocked that anyone would say anything bad about me. Yeah, I mean, I think that Reagan really is what happens when Golden Retriever Boyfriend goes wrong. Yeah. Yeah, this is it. This is why you don't want a golden retriever boyfriend. Because the FBI might be throwing that tennis ball. Yeah, and they might just be running straight into the traffic, which <laughs> is informing on all their friends because they heard a rumor they didn't they that someone said something mean about them once. So yeah, the McCarthy era in Hollywood is really getting kicked off here. The main kind of era of this is 1947 to 1954. So this is kind of the following year after Reagan's getting involved with the FBI agents. Reagan, by this time, he's an adult. He's 36 to 44 years old. Yeah, this is also, 
like things aren't going so well in other areas of his life as we'll discuss in a moment yeah so in 1947 the cold war officially starts we've been kind of toying with it for a while and you know famously what the cold war is like a period of conflict between the ussr and the united states that does not result in any direct combat between the two nations because basically each one is afraid that the other will nuke them to death and they'll die but it like there are a lot of hot conflicts between like little proxy. They do proxy wars. They yeah. do espionage, and the CIA is really up to some shit during the Cold War because remember the CIA's whole purpose, right, is to fight communism. So they're not allowed to fight communism in the United States, though. That's the FBI's job. The CIA's job is to fight communism around the globe. So this is where they really shine during this Cold War. So this is geopolitical tension, right? And we've got. Basically, think of it like every element of war except the physical combat. So there's a ton of propaganda. There's a ton of spying. But no direct USSR on USA smackdown. And McCarthyism starts picking up steam. Obviously, McCarthy was a U.S. senator, right? So for anybody who doesn't know, McCarthy is this U.S. senator. He's conservative. And he is like, the commies are among us. I've read stories about this guy that even his fellow senators was, were like, this guy's off the fucking handle. Apparently a fight broke out once because he was just going so bananas on the Senate floor. Yeah, he's a real, he's an extreme kook, and he brings about what we came to know as the second Red Scare. The first one was, like, maybe in 1919, the, right after was, the Russian Revolution. There was a lot of stuff going on in the 1930s and a lot of crazy propaganda about communism in the 30s. Yeah, the Red Scare never really left, but this is like where it really gets kicked up again in a major way. And McCarthy is responsible for fueling this panic spreading about communism in the United States. And he really becomes convinced that the communists are hiding amongst us, which, to be fair, they probably were. You know, there's some commies hanging around. And he's like, we gotta root them out or they are gonna kill us all in our sleep. Yeah, and like, what communism is... Like, went through a few filters before it got to most Americans' ears. Yeah, most Americans are not really understanding what communism is. They're like, communism is when the Russians want to punch my wife in the face, right? This is, like, they. I think they think that communism is the bad spy and, like, spy versus spy. Yes, 100%. Like, that's about the level of their understanding. Yeah, and it's probably intentional. Propaganda is happening to make everybody think that anything bad you hate is communism and anything good you like is capitalism. And around this time is when Ronald Reagan also becomes president of the Union of Movie Actors, famously the Screen Actors Guild. And he would serve in this position for a long time until 1952. Um, And this always killed me because I'm like, Reagan was a union man? Well, I mean, it's kind of interesting because at the time SAG, like, SAG was trying to figure out what to do with, like, these two other sort of movie industry unions in Los Angeles or in Hollywood, one of which was IATSE. Please do not ask me to tell you what IATSE stands My for. My dad's in the IATSE union. It's like uh, the something of theater stagehands yes, or something my dad's like. A stagehand. Yeah, That's a yeah. Union stagehand guy. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. And set builders and Brewer, the then president of IATSE, was more or less convinced that the set builders were all communists, and so he does get Reagan to kind of like side with IATSE over the set builders on striking at the time. Interesting. Um. Yeah, you said also the stuff about Les, uh, Lou Wasserman, his agent. Oh, yeah. So, oh, Reagan becomes president of the Screen Actors Guild in 47. Early in his tenure, or Reagan's agent had negotiated a deal between SAG and MCA, 
basically, as president of SAG, Reagan waived conflict of interest rules, allowing his agent, Lou Wasserman, to create a production company, which will become important in a bit. Yeah, this will get really important. Also in his role as president of the union, uh, he decided to bring fighting communism into the Screen Actors Guild. So he's not like a union, labor rights, socialist, workers' party guy. He's like a union, how do I make this position of power serve my best interest guy? Also, I still hate the communists because I think they were making fun of me once. And there, like, there are countless stories of someone saying something kind of snide to him at, like, a party and him just, like, immediately running to the FBI and giving... Being like, that guy's a communist. Yeah. He made fun of me. He said something funny to me and everybody laughed and I was really embarrassed and I think he's a communist. That's what communists do, right? Yeah. They make fun of you and it's really mean. Um, So he also at this time resigned from at least two Hollywood groups when he became convinced that they had communist leadings. So this included the Hollywood Independent Citizens Committee of Art Sciences and Professions. (laughs) He's like, you know what? This shit's getting real commie. I'm out of here. So, yeah, he's using the union, ironically enough, to fight communism? That makes sense to me. Like, in labor at the time, a lot of the sort of AFL-associated unions were purging their unions of avowed communists or even kind of left-leaning people to the extent of de-unionizing local plants. There was a big, like, no, 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 the unions are okay Oh, okay, kind the unions, yeah, that makes sense, that makes sense, um, actually. Um, yeah, well, Reagan was even, like, crossing picket lines to break strikes, you know, he was not what you think of as a union man during this time, and, again, Hollywood is really viewed as this, like, hotbed of leftist politics, like, and we still kind of see this today, all the actors are liberals. Do you remember how many actors and celebrities supported Rick Caruso? Yes, I do. And it was one of those things where it was like, real leftist Hollywood over here. Yes, and for anybody who doesn't know, here in Los Angeles, Rick Caruso ran for mayor, and he was a Republican who tried to rebrand himself as a Democrat, and he was uh, he's a developer who makes these like outdoor malls, one of which I will be doing my book. Oh, yeah, yeah, he did the Grove. the Grove. Yeah, 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 they're real dystopian, and they freak me out a little. Everything feels like it's about 1.5 human scale, so you feel a little bit small. That's true. Everything's a little weird. Yeah, it's a yeah. very, it's like, yeah, Alice Through the Looking Glass vibes. Yeah. Like, I don't think I'm supposed to be here. Very interesting. Um, so while McCarthyism is prevailing in Hollywood and they're all panicked about who is and who isn't a communist and Reagan is snitching to the FBI, uh, McCarthy has this House Un-American Activities Committee, which is now famous. And it's a committee within the within Congress that would call up actors, directors, studio executives. Make writers. Them, writers. Yeah. Make them come to these sessions in Congress and they would ask them flat out, are you or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? Like publicly. And these people would be expected to answer. And on top of that, they would also be like, well, if you're not, who do you think is? And this is where that phrase naming names comes from. They expected you to say no, you weren't, and then to name names of people mm-hmm. you thought were so they could come interrogate them as well. Uh, some actors, though, Lauren Bacall, Humphrey Bogart, Gene Kelly, they signed a petition denouncing the committee as un-American itself for probing the politics of individual citizens. I just got to point out, you just named three very cool actors. Yes. Yeah. They're really cool. They were like, this is bullshit, and this is not what being American is about. I thought being American was about freedom, freedom to believe whatever you want politically, and this is not it. So Hollywood, we see, was really divided on this issue. 
Um, but that same year, Reagan testifies as a friendly witness before the House Un-American Activities Committee, and he cooperates in this process of blacklisting actors, directors, and writers who are suspected of, yes, holding leftist sympathies. You didn't even have to be a communist. You just have to have left-leaning sympathies. Yeah, and the thing is, Reagan is able to sort of be ambivalent about it. He really is, and it's interesting. So yeah. his testimony is pretty much like, don't get me wrong, I love democracy, but sometimes, some people, maybe they shouldn't get a say. IDK, though. So I've got some key quotes from him here where you see you see what happens when a man doesn't have an ideology, right? So he says, 99% of us are pretty well aware of what is going on. I think within the bounds of our democratic rights and never once stepping over the rights given us by democracy. We've done a pretty good job in our business of keeping those people's activities curtailed. After all, we must recognize them at present as a political party. On that basis, we've exposed their lies when we've come across them. We have opposed their propaganda, and I can certainly testify that in the case of the Screen Actors Guild, we have been eminently successful in preventing them from, with their usual tactics, trying to run a majority of an organization with a well-organized minority. In opposing those people, the best thing we the best thing to do is make democracy work. In the Screen Actors Guild, we make it work by ensuring everyone a vote and by keeping everyone informed. I believe that, as Thomas Jefferson put it, if all the American people know all the facts, they will never make a mistake. Whether the party should be outlawed, that is a matter for the government to decide. As a citizen, I would hesitate to see any political party outlawed on the basis of its political ideology. We have spent 170 years in this country on the basis that democracy is strong enough to stand up and fight against the inroads of any ideology. However, if it is proven that an organization is an agent of a foreign power, or in any way not a legitimate political party, and I think the government is capable of proving that, then that is another matter. So he just kind of rambles on a whole gibberish of nothing. He's like, hey, look, if they're a political party, their rights should be protected. But if maybe you guys decide they're not a political party and maybe they're like a tool of Russian power, then that's a different thing completely. And how could I know? And I think, like, the thing is, he is behind the scenes informing on tons and tons of people. I think it, one estimate I saw said that he eventually got unofficially, because the blacklists were never official. Right. Uh, something like 50 people, just himself. So he's informing on tons of people, but when he's, you know, testifying before uh, HUAC, I think is how most people say it. Yeah. Uh, he's like, I don't know, man, don't ask me. Yeah, he's like, poor little innocent me, why would you ask me? Yeah. That's a matter for the government to decide. But he's working with the government to yeah. people out. So he and his wife, Jane Wyman, right, they have been, yes, providing the FBI with confidential information on suspected communist activities of their Hollywood colleagues this whole time. And Richard Nixon, who was at this time a young congressman, pushed Hollywood executives further to then produce anti-communist movies. So in 1948, things are really coming to a head, and the Hollywood Ten come about, and they challenge a U.S. House committee. These are writers, directors, and producers who declined to answer whether they were communists. And yes, they were blacklisted, and that meant that they were unable to land jobs in the movie industry. But on top of that, Actors who had previously even worked with someone who was blacklisted, they saw their odds of getting employed drop by 13% just because of the association. And actors who had worked with writers who had been named and blacklisted faced a 20% drop in future employment. So the only way to get unblacklisted, basically, was to appear before the House Un-American Activities Committee, apologize for joining the Communist Party, whether you joined it or not, to talk about how awesome the committee was. Be like, thanks, guys. I see the error of my ways. Now, and then name names. Put It's like a witch hunt. It's like, yeah. put up some other people and be like, I think they're the real witch. I mean, communist. I mean, 
the committee had to find something to do, and so if you're not a communist... Point me in the direction, babe. Yeah. Let's go. So, then comes about this tie-in that I think is really interesting with the anti-Semitism and the anti-communism. And this kind of makes sense when we talk about World War II, right? Like, the communists beat the Nazis. Yeah. So, in a lot of Americans' heads, and, and now, now when we think about World War II... Uh, the United States has good, uh, done a good job of kind of rewriting history to say the United States beat the Nazis. But at the time after the war, while the war was happening, everybody knew that the mm-hmm. USSR had beat the Nazis. Yeah. So, and some people now are like, well, like Stalin joined this, did a pact with Hitler, but Stalin had reached out to the United States and was like, hey, this Hitler guy is a bigger problem than both of us. I'm really freaked out. Like, we need to go in together against him. And the United States was like, no. So Stalin had signed this non-aggression pact with Hitler that was like, hey, we promise to cool it on your shit if you don't come invade our shit, okay, are we good? But the whole time, he was like, we gotta, we gotta stop these the, guys, we like, gotta stop these guys. Stalin knew that it wasn't going to last. Right. Yeah. So, eventually, you know, the United States and the USSR are allied in World War II mm-hmm. to fight against the Nazis. But, because after the war, everybody knows that the USSR beat the Nazis, all of a sudden, if you are anti-communist... Being anti-Semitic kind of goes hands in hand because, hey, the Nazis were anti-Semitic and they were anti-communist. The communists supported the Jewish people in their liberation from the Nazis, which is also interesting when you talk about, like, how so, like, episodes of anti-Semitism in, like, some satellite states of the USSR, which lots of people talk about a lot. Yeah. Regardless, in the Americans' minds, this is what's going on. I will say, additionally, the anti-communism, anti-Semitism thing plays off of, like, very well-known and pre-existing anti-Semitic tropes about the internal outsider, things like that. And that, in the 19th and early 20th century, there had been large numbers of left-wing either communist or not, uh, German-Jewish radicals who had made up large parts of the U.S. Communist Party. Right. And also Karl Marx, Jewish yeah. man, Mikhail Bakunin, when he would fight with Karl Marx, he would just spew anti-Semitism at that guy. So, right, it feels like anti-se- anti-Semitism always seems to just, like, it just pops up. And it'll get attached to any yeah. ideology. So, around this time, we get this tie-in where anti-Semitic conspiracy theories were talking about Jewish people being hostile to American life, and committee members were therefore skeptical both of Jewish people and of communists in the same breath. So Jewish entrepreneurs had been a little more prevalent in Hollywood in the 1930s, but they slowly started to get replaced with these major corporations. And the major corporations obviously hated the idea of unions, of Mm -hmm. labor movements, of communism, for obvious reasons. It meant costing them money. The more people were organized and fought for higher pay, the less profit these corporations make. So then, being anti-Jewish started to correspond with being anti-communist, and both were pro-corporate. So they were like, we're going to replace these independent entrepreneurs, who happen to be Jewish, with major corporations, and tell people that the Jews and the commies are evil. So the corporations would be lauded as this awesome replacement for the evil commie Jews, and then everyone would be like, oh my god, and workers organizing is demonic evil commie Jew stuff, so I won't do it, and I'll just be happy with whatever the beautiful, wonderful corporation gives me as a gift as my pay. And this was like so interesting to me that this shift happened so soon because it was not long ago that Reagan was literally about to punch a Nazi at a cocktail party. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, he's chasing a tennis ball. He's chasing the tennis ball into the street and it's like, it's a communism? I'm going there. And then it's like, what if we told you the commies are Jewish? And he's like, oh, okay, hate them both, I guess, (laughs) whatever. So 
while this is happening, on the recommendation of that young Nixon, Hollywood starts to create these anti-communist films. Like, Iron Curtain is one that comes I, out this year. Have you seen this? No, have you? No. I can't imagine it's good. It, it can't be. And it's also worth noting, the CIA influenced the film industry in the United States to put anti-communist propaganda in movies for decades. Yeah. There was even a point in time where the USSR was like, the United States is so racist, it's so segregated. Oh my god, look how racist and segregated it is. Ugh, would hate to be you guys. So the CIA went to Hollywood executives and they were like, all of the extras in your movies, you need to have this ratio of black people in them to make it look like we are not segregated and racist here. Doing math and ratios about race? Yes. Definitely not racist. Not a racist yeah. thing to do at all. No, definitely not Nazi shit. So, while this is all happening, Jane Wyman has had enough I guess, of her husband's shit. She does say at some point it was weird to come, like, to get up to go to work and just have this guy sitting at the breakfast table expounding. <laughs> I'm a... <laughs> Which I feel like that is... Give a dumb guy one idea and he'll just talk about that idea until you can't stand it anymore. Yeah, and I think Reagan really is a dumb guy. I really think he is. So Jane Wyman files for divorce. That same year, she wins an Oscar for Best Actress in the movie Johnny Belinda. She goes on to get nominated in her future career for two more Oscars. She hosts her own anthology television series called Jane Wyman Presents the Fireside Theater. And she even records albums as a singer. And three songs reach the Billboard Top 30. And one was a number one album. So she goes on after leaving Ronald Reagan to have this amazing career. Yeah. Meanwhile, very, very famous uh, Hollywood gossip columnist Hedda Hopper is attributing the divorce to Wyman's heartless decision to star in Johnny Belinda as a deaf-mute woman shortly after the death of their third child. Uh, as you mentioned, Wyman won an Oscar and her movie career began to take off right as Ronald Reagan. He ain't doing so hot as an actor. Yeah, it's true. And we can talk about uh, how ethical or not it is to have Wyman star as a deaf-mute woman. <laughs> it's a little... I mean, it, it, It's weird. But whatever the case, yeah, her career took off. And yeah. meanwhile, Ronald Reagan, not doing so great. Um, I will say it is interesting that Jane Wyman filing for divorce makes Ronald Reagan later on in life the first U.S. president to have ever been divorced. He's breaking records all over the place. He really is. Um, but this same year, you know, Reagan is still identifying as a Democrat, and he is campaigning for Harry Truman during the presidential election. 1949, some more anti-communist films come out of Hollywood. We've got The Red Menace. We've got I Married a Communist. That Sounds one, hot. Yeah, I like that one. I want to watch that one, actually. But these propaganda films, they tank at the box office. And Reagan himself, yes, also tanking at the box office. So, 49, Warner Brothers reduces his contract. I believe it's from seven films to two. Uh, Ouch. His career is flagging. Warner's has been re has, uh, has reduced his contract to two films a year right around the time that Wyman's is taking off. So, he's watching this happen. Yeah, he's and like, he's like my ex-wife. He's uh, Yeah, it's really an interesting thing, like the, um, like, my wife left me thing. Like, how Elon Musk got app extra vile after Grimes left him or you know you see these things happen yeah. on the internet where it's like oh my god dude your wife left you and you're losing it and I think this might kind of happen to Reagan he gets a little kookier after Wyman leaves and he's making less money at one point he's doing sort of emceeing at local Hollywood clubs to like make ends meet and he's living in an apartment in Hollywood Ugh. Ugh. it's a little brutal yeah but it turns out that reducing his contract 
actually allowed him to later on secure a new, more lucrative deal with Universal Studios, which became a financial windfall for him because his career was in decline. Originally, with the full contract, he would not be allowed to ever make movies with another studio. But yeah. because it had been reduced, there was like this loophole where they were like, yeah, I guess you can make movies with Universal Studios. And he got like a Hail Mary that pulled him out of this declining career and kind of buoyed him up for a little bit. And around the same time that he's going through all this, Ronald Reagan goes to a dinner party and meets the relatively unknown actress and notorious throat goat herself. Okay. Nancy Davis. So, this is a period of time. Reagan is 39, 39 to 54. We're talking about the years 1950 to 1965. This is a period of time where Reagan really becomes a Republican. Yeah. There are stages. There are stages to it. But Nancy Davis is important to these stages. So if you listen to our bonus episode on Patreon, you know all about Nancy Davis by this point. But if you haven't, the thing you need to know is that she's more politically conservative than Ronald Reagan when they meet. And it is widely accepted that her political beliefs are what brought Ronald Reagan further right. And so Reagan joined a group called the Motion Picture Industry Council, which helped actors clear their name of communist chargers. Then 28-year-old Nancy Davis, an actress, was attempting to clear her name because, as she said, she violently hated anything to do with the left. Uh, The one film they ever appealed in together was Hellcats of the Navy. It is bad. Yes. This is not... I also watched this one. You watched a lot of these movies. But not I Married a Communist? I... You know... I watched the movies he was famous for. Okay. Well, I think we got to watch I Married a Communist. That sounds great. So, in 1950, you know, by this point, if you listen to the bonus, yes, you know Nancy Reagan was really important to shifting his political ideology. But this same year, the literary critic Lionel Trilling famously remarked, in the United States at this time, liberalism is not only the dominant, but the sole intellectual tradition. For it is the plain fact that there are no conservatives or reactionary ideas in circulation, but only irritable mental gestures which seem to resemble ideas. That actually sounds like everything that goes on in Ronald Reagan's head. Irritable mental gestures? Yes, 100%. So, at the time that Reagan meets Nancy, and Nancy is really conservative, and her family and her just very, very racist people... Uh, by all accounts, extremely racist. There's not really an organized place to put all of these thoughts where it's like, I hate minorities and think I'm special and don't want to help anybody. What is this mindset? And there can't be, right? Because the New Deal literally saved the United States from economic turmoil. So everybody knows, they remember, like, government spending saved us. Like, the state spending helped us. So there's not really a place for people to be like, but what if I pretend it didn't help and also I hate minorities? This is the time around which the John Birch Society is sort of taking off, which was this like virulently anti-communist kind of conspiracy-oriented group that had a lot of presence in Pasadena and Orange County. And by some accounts, Nancy Davis, Nancy Reagan was involved or socializing with those crowds. I could see that for sure. Um, and Reagan's personal relationship with... Nancy's racist conservative family, it's all he really has to help guide this new ideology he's picking up from Nancy. Like, what if we didn't care about people? What if being anti-communist meant actually being, like, anti-helping anybody? Because the communists are trying to help everybody. And if you're anti-communist, you have to be anti-that. Really, the only place he has to put these ideas is in Nancy and her family, who are also just, like, fucked up evil racists. So Reagan, at this time, 1950, right, like, one year after meeting Nancy, switches 
His support from Democratic senatorial candidate Helen Douglas to Republican Richard Nixon midway through the campaign. This is how effective she is at bringing him right. And by 1951, his acting career is, yes, getting wacky again. He stars in a series of movies with a chimpanzee called Bedtime for Bonzo. You have stories about this. I mean, the only story I really have is that I know about this because one of my friends has, like, a hippie dad who, every time it was bedtime as a child, would say bedtime for Bonzo, and my friend never understood what it was and then later realized it was a Ronald Reagan movie where he stars with a chimpanzee. This is, I feel like, the nadir of reagan's acting career yeah he's he's at the bottom of the well he is at the bottom it's like dunstan checks in it's like uh when that guy left seinfeld and he started dunstan checks in a movie about him working in a hotel with a monkey what is it which guy this was his movie after seinfeld ended it was real awkward so that's the phase that we see ronald reagan and he's in bedtime for bonzo land but he still had a status as the sag president so he like weirdly still had a lot of power in Hollywood. So his most significant relationship at this time was, yes, with the powerful talent agency we mentioned earlier, MCA, the Music Corporation of America. So remember, early on, Reagan's agent, Lou Wasserman, and MCA co-founder, Jules Stein, had seen Reagan's potential, not only for, like, keeping the peace with the labor union, but also to help MCA fulfill its quest to become the most dominant force in Hollywood. They're like, this guy is business, and he's good at smoothing things over with people because he can be anybody, depending on who you're talking to, right? Mm -hmm. So they were totally right about this. Reagan helped MCA become what a federal judge later called an octopus with tentacles reaching out to all phases and grasping everything in show business. By the same token, Reagan's proximity to these powerful people in Hollywood, especially in MCA, would increase his personal wealth and also propel his political career. So he's like, my, my career is down the shitter, but I still have this status. I'm going to use it to make connections and help the business guys out. Yeah. So he, he's really pro-business, and we see that cementing here. So around this time, the SAG board, which included Reagan, his new second wife Nancy now, and four other people, helped MCA obtain a blanket waiver from the rule, prohibiting talent agents from being producers. With this huge privilege now, MCA becomes the only talent agency able to move into the television industry while also maintaining its base as a talent agency. So MCA, because of this, goes on to monopolize Hollywood television production. And guess who's their little buddy? It's Reagan. It's Reagan, and he's benefiting right along with them. And in 1951, the House on American Activities Committee returns, and Reagan has by this time gone full hard right anti-communist. Like, there's no equivocating like he was doing when he testified before. Uh, basically, his position is, quote, if the public is so offended by an actor's positions, they're basically unsaleable. They shouldn't get work anyways. So basically, there's no blacklist. And he will say this over and over again. Like, at some point, someone asks him about it during the Korean War. And he goes, like, well, if they don't support the Korean War, they won't be popular and they won't get hired. That That's... His line is always, there's no blacklist, we just don't like you. Right. Very interesting. So, 1952 comes around, and Reagan is supporting Republican Dwight Eisenhower in the presidential election. This is the same year he marries Nancy in a simple ceremony, and she officially becomes, yes, Nancy Reagan. She is pregnant at the time that they get married, and actor William Holden is the best man. So throughout the 1950s, as Reagan's political ideology becomes more conservative, he does, yes, convert to this very staunch anti-communist take. 
And he begins to care less and less about racial justice, right? So this is something he'd been more passionate about before. But remember, Nancy and her family are pretty openly racist people. To the extent that Nancy's stepdad, which we talked about in the bonus episode, was getting trouble at work for it. Oh, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, it's pretty wild. The bonus episode is really interesting if you want to hear about Nancy Reagan. She's a very interesting character. So by the mid-1950s, this conservative movement in the United States starts to finally coalesce into something more organized. And this is what people start to call the new right. So this corresponded with William F. Buckley Jr. launching the National Review in 1955 and Russian novelist Ayn Rand publishing Atlas Shrugged in 1957, right? Which the whole book just talks about the virtues of self-interest above all else. I hate Ayn Rand with a dying passion. This is a weird thing. Our high school speech and debate teacher once gave me an anthology of Ayn Rand writings. Well, she, you know, she had some weird opinions. She was yeah. super Christian, too. Do you remember that? I do remember that. Also, have you ever seen William F. Buckley speak? No. I urge everyone, go online. This man has the most bizarre affect. It's like silent movie actor playing a villain. He is kind of a villain, so that checks out. William F. Buckley is one of the strangest mans in, men in the world. Like, so weird. Yeah, very, very interesting. And so, you know, Ronald Reagan starts to find his home amongst the Ayn Rands and the William F. Buckley Juniors of the world. And the National Review, for reference, Buckley's magazine, it is like considered the Bible at this time of the conservative movement. It opposes the civil rights struggle. It sides with all the Southern segregationists. And by all accounts, it's just outright racist, both Buckley and the National Review. Yeah. And this is kind of shocking at the time, because remember, we're coming off this period where everybody's like, the New Deal worked, it saved us, we need to help people, ah! And then by the mid-1950s, people are like, what if we fucking didn't and also were overtly pieces of shit? I mean, racism had a, like... Racism was still there, but it wasn't something you could comfortably just say around mixed company. There had been... During sort of the 20s and 30s, like, uh, the Klan got massively popular and became one of the largest social organizations in the country. Right. All that stuff happened, but, like, I don't think it was polite discourse in the 1950s among Reagan's friends. Yeah, Let's this put is it the that thing. Way. When they talk about what's accepted among the intellectuals, not necessarily the intellectual class, they're saying, but they're saying anybody who didn't consider themselves, like, just an outrageous idiot hillbilly. Ha 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 ha. But this really gives it a place where they're like, oh, you got a little bit of money? You interact with polite society? Well, guess what? Maybe it is a little more normal for you to just say the racist stuff out loud in front of everybody now. Yeah, the National Review became the home for, like, conservative intellectuals for whatever that's worth. Exactly, yeah. So it's not like racism ever died, obviously. <laughs> but it became a little gauche to do it in public for a few years. Sort of. Depending on your social class. Sort of. And yeah, your sort group. of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, whatever the case, this does symbolize something new. It does kind of bring it out of the shadows a little and make it acceptable. Now you could be a quote-unquote well-respected member of society and you could be riding the train reading the National Review. Yeah. That was just saying a bunch of racist shit, dressed up in fancy language to make it feel like it was just facts and you were an intellectual. Hmm. Yeah. Really gnarly stuff. So... 1954, Reagan's movie career officially just, it's donezo. It's bedtime for Bonzo, Bonzo, <laughs> right? And he moves into... 
Television. Television, like every failed movie actor does. So, you know, it, he just was too early for the era of prestige television. That's true. I don't know that he would have qualified for prestige television. Maybe if they had more monkeys. Chimpanzees? Was chimpanzees. It? Chimpanzees. chimpanzees. Was, it was a yeah, chimpanzee. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so remember how Reagan had, as president of SAG, waived conflict of interest rules about agents serving and producers, and Reagan's agent, Lou Wasserman, formed a production company? Wasserman, through his production cable company, was able to cast Ronald Reagan, whose career, in the shitter, er, er, uh, as host and sometimes star of a new General Electric anthology series, General Electric Theater, in 1954. The show was genuinely well-received and was able to rope in guest stars ranging from Cary Grant to Irene Dunn to Groucho Marx and Sammy Davis Jr. You know who else? Who else? His ex-wife. Oh. Wyman. She was like, oh, come on, your silly little show, love. I've got my Oscars. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Reagan was also kind of a spokesman and showroom dummy for GE, exemplifying their slogan, Live Better Electrically. His new ranch house with Nancy and Pacific Palisades was outfitted with GE's latest gadgets. It was so extensive that GE had to install a 3,000-pound switch box <gasps> just to take care of all the weird electric gadgets. We're talking weird colored lights. There were three TV sets in the damn 50s. Whoa. This was everything you could think of. I want to see it. I kind of do, too. I'm sure... Why can't that be Reagan's boyhood home? Why can't we visit that? The General Electric 3,000-pound switch box, the home of the future from 1954. Yeah, he even appeared in commercials along with his daughter extolling the virtues of GE's electric servants to make mommy's life easier. Okay, that kind of checks out with the, with the real racist vibes. In addition to his role as basically, he's a spawn con guy now. He really is. He's in his influencer era. Reagan spent as much as 12 weeks a year touring General Electric's vast and decentralized network of plants and factories, giving speeches, often per Mike Davis, of a deliberately anti-regulatory and anti-union bent. So, okay, so imagine this. You're working at GE, and Ronald Reagan... Bedtime for Bonzo. Bedtime for Bonzo, B-list actor, shows up, and he's like... You know what's really cool? 3,000 pound switch boxes that power all of your electronic slaves. You know what's not cool? Unions. Asking for raises. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, uh. And you're just like, what the fuck is <laughs> happening right now? I mean, it was probably the highlight of your day because you weren't working for GE at that specific moment. I kind of imagine you're still actually oh, working oh, yeah, while yeah. he's doing it. Um, they're like yelling at you not to pay too much attention and just let it passively enter your ear canal. Okay, so uh, we got to talk about GE. Uh, during the 1920s under Owen Young and Gerard Swoop. Swoop? Swoop. Swoop, okay. GE had touted a kind of progressive management style. This is the era of collective bargaining in which scientific management or Taylorism is taking over. And so they're basically, like, big corporations are like, we keep having these damn strikes. This is a real bummer. Uh, so what if we kind of work off of a collective bargaining thing that avoids strikes while also still fucking over employees? Got it. Uh, it this meant company-wide representation plans, pension plans, etc. So they are doing things for workers, but basically in order to 
co-opt any kind of worker solidarity to like management solidarity does that make sense yes it's kind of like when dove charney went uh to the american apparel workers and they were trying to unionize and he was like why do you need a union i give you everything you want yeah that's that's the vibe yes uh so this is sometimes called company unionism or corporate welfareism and it was intended at best to normalize labor relations against strikes however in 1946 the Famously, the left-wing United Electrical Workers went on strike for the first time, shutting down the entire electrical industry. And did that include GE? Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, So in response to this, General Electric turned from the benign corporate welfareism of Young and Swope to a man pulled in from the appliances division, Lemuel Bulware. What a name. Another name. A name. Lemuel. Yeah. I like the name, unfortunately. We don't get names like that Yeah, we really don't. His anti-unionism borrowed heavily from free labor rhetoric, and as he explained, speaking about the speaking campaign on which Reagan was embarking, this program of ours is a job marketing program. It is an adaptation from the consumer marketing process. The job market and the product market deal with the same people and the same considerations. So he's like, you're selling GE, baby. Every And like, he's saying, you're selling GE to the workers and their job this is the same as any other consumer good. Right. At the same time, the UE was expelled from the CIO for their alleged communist or left-wing affiliations. This, again, was the thing where a lot of the large national unions, or the AFL and the CIO, who were not then connected, were trying to purge their ranks of communists. Um, GE redesigned their manufacturing from unitary plants in the Northeast to decentralized plants, uh, Bulware's strategy towards union was basically a take-it-or-leave-it strategy that imposed harsh lockouts on unions during contract negotiations. As one union lo- leader put it, Bulware's strategy was to tell workers what they were entitled to and shove it down their throats. Wow, so they're like, we're not playing softball with you fucks anymore. Yeah, this we're is... playing hardball, this is what you get, take it or leave it, and if you don't want it, fucking walk home in the snow. Yeah, so on these speaking tours, Reagan later estimated, which Reagan later estimated took a full two years of his life. Wow. His final conversion to conservatism from whatever was left of his New Deal Democrat past seems to take place. While on tour with self-described arch-conservative GE public relations man Earl Dunkel, Reagan began absorbing the free market ideology of Hayek, the road to serfdom guy. Yes. Whitaker Chambers and Henry Hazlitt, I gotta admit, I don't know much about these guys. They seem, they're like neoliberal, like yeah, deregulate yeah. everything. Yes. Uh, in a 1957 address to his alma mater, Eureka College, Reagan twinned the threads of communism and government expansion, stating, it's just that there's something inherent in government which makes it, when it isn't controlled, continue to grow. Remember that every government service, every offer of government finance security is paid for in the loss of personal freedom. He's... He's a Republican, baby. He's there. He's there. And this is a precursor to speeches we'll see him give in the future. Yeah. And if I'm, anything, he's maybe a little paranoid at this point. I mean, this is kind of the, like, to associate communism, or I think now we would say socialism, if people were trying to be arch conservative about it yeah it's more any sort of weird that socialism upsets people less than communism even though communism and communist theory is the state at which there is like 
no money, no class, no government, and socialism yeah. is a state at which you do have more of a government presence, and most of the people who claim to hate communism hate a big government, yet when you say communism, they freak out, and when you say socialism, they're like, well, socialism's fine. And it's like, socialism is the intermediate stage between capitalism and communism, on which the government, which you claim to hate so much, is actually doing more. But it just proves that people don't actually know what they claim to hate when they say they hate communism or socialism. I mean, I think, like, I, I suppose you're talking about, like, liberals and yeah, those sort of, like, yeah, classic yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, uh, like, those people, they're, they're, like, they'll say something that always feels weird to me where they'll be like, well, social democracy, like, in Sweden, yeah. or something where <laughs> like you're Like, where the white people do where, it, not where the peasants revolted and killed the oligarchs. <laughs> which is, like, I mean, Sweden sounds like a lovely country, but that, it always feels like, okay, you picked, like, something that, where you're like, nobody could disagree with this. It's, it's... But it is weird, because it's like, well, that's still a neoliberal, heavily privatized capitalist economy, it just has a social safety net. Yeah, they mean social democracy. Yeah, yeah, they mean, like, the Bernie AOC. Like, yeah. what the Democratic Party was supposed to be. Yeah, um, or the Democratic Socialists of America. The DSA, that also. The, the DSA's that's what the got, Democrats are supposed to be, I think. Had some weird policies back in the 80s. I mean, the DSA still has some weird policies. Yeah. Uh, so in 1959, address to GE executives at the Waldorf Historia, this is the other thing, titled Business Ballots Bureaus, Reagan excoriated the shift towards New Deal welfareism, saying that today there's hardly a phase of our daily lives that does not feel the stultifying hand of government regulation and interference, calling this the essence of totalitarianism. This is the first example of what get, ends up getting called the speech, which Reagan just gives over and over and over. Yes. Right. And that's what we saw when he gave that speech to his alma mater. Yeah. Like, this is, this is the beginning of the speech. And in 62, GE drops Reagan, and there are... He has this weird thing where he thinks JFK made GE do it. Sort of me where like he's getting kind of paranoid. Uh, and the idea seems to be, and citation needed, Ronnie, uh, that JFK was going to restrict GE's contracts with the federal government if they didn't get rid of Ronald Reagan because he was getting too much of a firebrand conservative guy. Wow. Yeah. Very interesting. And at this point, it also should be mentioned that he, in 1960, he did endorse Richard Nixon, so maybe that has something yeah, to do with it. Yeah, that might have something yeah. to do with it. Um, some other interesting things about Reagan's time at General Electric Theater include that the MCA, MCA gave Reagan himself 25% ownership of the show, which further increased his wealth. So he really is getting into the business side of things. Um, there's also this other random little tidbit. Reagan, who was now officially a producer, had never quit SAG's executive board. And the union approved a permanent expansion of MCA's blanket waiver to just basically do whatever the fuck they so want. So the conflict of interest, that doesn't... How could Reagan have conflict of interest when he's so dumb? Right, he's so... Yeah, I know exactly. Uh, he's actually really working the system for himself. Yeah, no, I mean, he's great. And I think part of it might have been that he was like, holy shit, if you don't care about people and you just care about business, you can make a lot of money. Yeah. Maybe that was the ball that he chased into traffic. He, I mean, the rhetoric of the speech is very, fuck the state, corporations are your friend. Yes, and meanwhile, this whole time he's traveling for GE, by train, by the way, fun anecdote, he's afraid of flying at this stage. 
Oh, really? Yeah, very interesting. He is reading all sorts of those right-wing magazines and books. He's reading human events. He's reading Reader's Digest, which apparently is very right-wing. I didn't know this. I just thought it was the thing that was on your grandma's, like, toilet. Yeah, I thought that too, but then I'm like, both of my grandmas, I think, were Republicans. So maybe it was just on their toilets. You know oh. what I mean? My, my grandma was... I don't even know how to talk about her politics. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Road to Serfdom, which we mentioned earlier, and yes... The National Review, the magazine we talked about earlier. And when looking back at this time, Reagan says his GE years were a postgraduate course in political science and an apprenticeship for public life. So really, he was training himself by doing these speeches and these talks and going around for the GE thing and also reading all of these materials while on the train, probably given to him by his new by father-in-law. Like Dunkel and Bulware. Yeah, his also, new bosses, his co-workers, yeah. and his father-in-law, their Nancy Reagan's da- dad, basically. He was becoming the perfect spokesman for the new right. So, 1959-1960 comes around. By the early 1960s, Reagan had started to view political liberalism like being what the United States at the time considered the appropriate form of left wing, but not like a leftist, not like a communist. He started to view any sort of left-leaning ideology like caring about poor people or government spending as the opening wedge to totalitarianism. And that's what I mean where I'm like, this guy got real paranoid real fast. He had gone so far to the right that he was now accepting awards from fervent racists like Mississippi Governor Ross Barnett and Arkansas Governor Orville Faubus. He's just like, yeah, lay it on me. I don't give a fuck. He also returned as president of the Screen Actors Guild, and this coincided with a period of labor unrest involving television residuals. So even though Reagan owned a stake in General Electric Theater, he was still instrumental in resolving the strike. So basically, SAG agreed to receive a one-time payment of $2.65 million for its approximately 13,500 members in exchange for surrendering its members' rights to any royalties from the over 5,000 movies made prior to 1960. So MCA had purchased Paramount Studios' film library, and they were like, we're going to profit from this deal because we're not going to have to pay anybody any royalties. This also feels like a conflict of interest thing and a raw deal. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So it is true that the $2.65 million they received did fund SAG's pension and welfare fund for decades, but the Hollywood acting community called this the great giveaway. They were not pleased. They were like, this was not a fair deal for this. Even Bob Hope, who was a conservative, said the pictures were sold down the river for a certain amount of money. Over the years, Reagan's relationship with MCA continued, and it kind of peaked in 1966 when MCA's Jules Stein negotiated the sale of Reagan's Malibu property at a tremendous profit that made Reagan even richer. So every business deal Reagan has had that the MCA touched just made him wealthy, whether it worked out or not. The Justice Department would later investigate Reagan's dealings with the MCA. Investigators subpoenaed his tax records and called him before a federal grand jury. During his 1962 testimony, Reagan failed to recall if SAG had granted him the waiver in exchange for residual fees, and the Justice Department had no choice but to eventually absolve Reagan of any illicit activities because investigators could find no corroborating evidence that Reagan received a quid pro quo from the MCA waiver. But since Lou Wasserman dealt in secrecy and always refused to take notes... None of this was surprising. The investigation, though, especially Reagan's testimony, raised credible questions of cronyism. And this is the first time we really see people start to notice that Reagan is a business guy and he is looking out for himself. And this is the thing. We make jokes about Reagan being dumb. Yeah. Savvy business guy. But it could be that people were just like, you will profit from this. And he's like, okay. 
Yeah. He's like their patsy. Yeah. In a lot of ways. He never... I mean, the patsy usually gets it. But end. he never gets it. Yeah. He's the luckiest patsy in the world. He's like if Harold Lloyd was a patsy and just bumbled his way into success. I'm just saying, Harold Lloyd lost a finger on that clock. Did he? Yeah. In real life? In real life. What? I didn't know that. No, this is that the clock scene. Famously, clock scene Harold, hangs, Lyon, yeah. Harold Lloyd hangs off of a clock. Right. He lost a finger. Wow. Reagan didn't even lose a damn finger. We used to be a country. Yeah. Actors used to die for their clock scenes. <laughs> yeah. So in 1964, civil rights becomes a hot issue, right? Yeah. Reagan, though, politically, he's choosing Barry Goldwater's brand of states' rights conservatism over just, like, caring about human rights at all. And remember, this used to be something Reagan cared about, or at least he said he cared about. I think probably he doesn't really care about anything. No, he's he's looking out for number one. Yes. And in California, Prop 14 is on the ballot, which is a measure to amend the California state constitution to nullify the 1963 Rumford Fair Housing Act, which made it illegal for property sellers, landlords, and their agents to openly discriminate on people based on based on their ethnicity or race. This is funny granting later when he is running for governor. It comes out that he did, in fact, sign a racist uh, grant or like a racist covenant. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So... This is something coming out, and Reagan's kind of like, I think that sounds like a pretty good idea. I like that. So Goldwater was supporting the proposition. So Reagan's like, yeah, that sounds good. I'm on board. So we really have, like, I feel like this is, like, the evidence that, on top of him accepting the awards from the fervent racist, that Reagan is now just fully on board with Team White Supremacy Camp. And Barry Goldwater is doing, like, a Southern Strategy States Rights kind of thing in a pretty cynical way. I had read that in 57 and 60, he did, in fact, support earlier civil rights legislation, but he changed his mind uh, and didn't support the 1964 civil rights bill on the basis of its protections on the basis of race. Right. So probably I also, I, I would guess that sometimes politically certain people come to power that make racists more comfortable talking about the racism more openly. Yeah. And, like, I remember when Donald Trump was elected the first time, uh, one of my friends who was... I'm sorry, the first time? Oh, he's only elected once. You're right. Sorry. Do you you have... uh, (laughs) I think he's going to win. I think he's going to win. I mean, I think he's going to win in, like, the lowest turnout election in modern I think so, too. I think so, too. I'm sorry. I was already living in the future. I was living in some of my predictions were real. Um, I've just kind of assumed he's going to win. So, the first election (laughs) that Trump was in when he won, my friend who was Filipina was like, honestly, like... It's kind of a comfort because now all the racists are comfortable saying out loud all the shit that I knew they were thinking all the time, but I had to pretend like in front of my white friends, maybe they were. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I do think that when certain people are in positions of power, it emboldens people to be more vocal about their fucked up beliefs. So it could be that people like Goldwater are seeing that there's more public support or at least public like allowance, acceptance for you to just do super, super fucking racist shit again. Like, for a while, everyone was gung-ho on the doing super racist shit. And then it seems like for a while, it fell out of fashion to be that overt about it. It's just a little... It's not fashionable. It's not tasteful. And now... They still do it. They still do it. They still do it. They do it the whole time. But now, it's like, oh, I don't have to pretend like I care. No, actually, I don't care about those people. Fuck them. I'm not supporting it. Yeah. So for a certain class of people... The political class. The political class had a little more freedom 
to just be blatantly racist as much as they wanted in front of the masses now. And they were starting, they're like, I can get away with it. I'm just doing it. Fuck it. Yeah. I never cared at all. So I think that's why. I don't think it's like Goldwater switched his opinions. No, I don't think, I mean, I think that he, the impression I get is that his opinions don't matter. What is politically expedient is where he's looking. Yes. That, like, and racism is politically expedient at this point. 100%. And in the last week of Goldwater's campaign, Reagan ends up delivering this 30-minute nationally televised address called A Time for Choosing. Maddie, did you watch this thing? No. Did you watch it? I watched the whole goddamn thing. Wow. I read a lot of quotes. It's... I will say Reagan is a fantastic public speaker. Interesting. He's an actor. He's an actor. He's a B-list actor. B-list actors can give a, a moving speech. So this is a like real anti-communist city on a hill kind of speech. In it, Reagan pictures America as the last stand on earth for freedom. Wow, dramatic. Okay. Yeah, and it's right in the New Deal era... This was also City on a Hill shit, but it was City on a Hill in the sense that, like, the sort of WPA, this, like, kind of, like, America was was worth saving because it was that. Now it's sort of corporations are the City on the Hill. That's America. (laughs) Corporations are worth saving. Uh, He drew a a picture of American politics as a struggle between a small bureaucratic elite and the common man yearning to be free. The government can't control the economy without controlling people. So this is that all that training he learned in GE is coming home to roost. Yes. And the Washington Post described this speech as, quote, the most successful political debut since William Jennings Bryan electrified the 1896 Democratic Convention with his cross of gold speech. And this resulted in $1 million in campaign contributions for Republican candidates, uh, the most attributable to any political speech in history. And it catapulted Reagan instantly into the national political stage and made him a hero of the Republican New Right. So, what's the next step from here? He's got to run for governor. He's got to run for governor. So in 1966, Reagan, now 55 years old, runs for governor. Can we... I've lived in California with brief pauses my entire damn life. I've been here the whole time, yeah. We have never had a good governor. We really haven't. Yeah. That is true. We have not had a good governor. Uh, we had to live through the governor. Yeah. And before them, Gray Davis, that guy, he, he gave nothing. No, was Jerry Brown the governor when we were born? Jerry Brown, I think, was the governor when we were born. Yeah, um, no. He was the, uh, you'll, you'll all be forced to meditate thing from the Dead Kennedy song, right? I don't remember that one. I remember uh, uh, the suede denim secret police oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. for your uncool niece. Yeah, that he was that guy. Yeah. Uh, it's just been a shit show the whole time. It really has. And it's so funny that people think of us as some sort of like left-leaning bastion. You know, it's we're really struggling out here. No, we got some I, real weirdos. Half of them are Republicans. Not that it matters because the Democrats are Republicans too. It's all weird. I mean, there's a whole thing called the California ideology, which pairs a kind of social liberalism on some subjects with, like, rampant corporate libertarianism. Yes! And I feel like that's really what's going on in California. That's exactly what's going on in California. 
Totally. So 1966, Reagan runs for governor and he runs on a conservative platform. He's saying, I want fiscal responsibility. I want a small government. I want to crack down on these pesky student protests and I want to reform welfare. And he has said his two main goals are, quote, send the welfare bums back to work and clean up the mess at Berkeley. Which he does. Oh, genius! Or he creates a mess. He creates a mess. So yeah. In a video announcing his 1966 gubernatorial campaign, Reagan said, Working men and women should not be asked to carry the additional burden of providing for a segment of society capable of caring for itself, but which prefers to make welfare a way of life, freeloading at the expense of these more conscious citizens. So he really was painting poor people and students as the enemies of the rest of the United States, and in particular, other Californians. And remember, in addition to civil rights, was this was the height of the anti-war movement. This, like, student protests were popping off all over the country. So this was that. Internally within the Republican Party, this signaled a shift away from patrician Republicanism of Northern California power base towards a more insurgent, anti-communist culture warrior, the John Bircher kind of guys coming home to roost, base centered around Orange County. Of course, Orange County. Ugh. Yeah, nothing... Well, some good things have come out of Orange County. There's Very few. Vance. There's yeah. a, uh, no doubt. The Ska Revival. That's this, Orange County? Dystopia. Dystopia. No, I'm going third wave ska. Third wave ska revival is my okay. real good thing to come out of Orange County. I my my unpopular opinion. I like Fear. Oh no, I like Fear too. Fear is great. I think they're hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. New York's alright if you like saxophones. Yeah. No, it's. I love that song. Making fun of the no wave movement, please. Also, yeah, leaving yeah. great vocalists. Yes. Okay. Anyway. Uh, Why so- do we have the same hot take about Fear? Okay. Anyway, continue. Sorry. After the failure of Goldwater's campaign, three activists within the Republican Party, Vernon Christina, Walter Knott, and John Gramola, uh, hit upon the idea of using Reagan as a vehicle for insurgent conservatism. I like the term insurgent conservatism. I mean, it makes sense. It does. If you think about, like, the, like, old Republican Party, like the Rockefeller Republicans... There was a certain amount of social moderateness that happened because the party was sort of the party of the, like, eastern seaboard big business elite and the yeoman farmer of, like, the Midwest. Yeah, I can see that. Like, that that was kind of who was a Republican. And so these, like, sunbelt suburbanites, this is, like, a new thing in the Republican Party. Right, right. In his political campaign, Reagan played his lack of political experience as a benefit, saying, I'm not a politician in the sense of having held political office. Which, which is, is like, the definition of a politician, yeah. But I think I can lay claim to being a citizen politician. Basically, he ran a campaign that mobilized fears of government overreach and then and then explosive anti-Vietnam War movement and the civil rights movement to catalyze support from erstwhile socially democratic conservative voters, mostly yes. from the suburbs. Got it. And that makes sense with the Orange County tie-in. That's what we see. For yeah. anybody not from California, uh, there are huge swaths of California that are deeply conservative, and Orange County in Southern California is one of them. Our hometown, kind of. Our hometown always goes Democrat. Yeah. But the surrounding areas are very, very, very Republican because they are farmers. So our, our hometown is a city in the middle of farms, basically. Yeah. And it's a city of... Mostly people of color. We're minority-majority city. 
Yeah. It's Fresno, right in the middle of California, but the surrounding farmlands are very conservative, and the neighboring town, Clovis, is very conservative. And the, I feel like the San Joaquin Gen- Valley, in general, often very conservative. Yes. Again, farms. Yes, the farms, exactly. Mm-hmm. And let's say the power base of the San Joaquin Valley, deeply, deeply conservative. Yes. Uh, uh, so additionally, Reagan, the Reagan campaign hired two behavioral psychologists. This was an innovation at the time. Stanley Plogg and Kenneth Holden of the Behavioral Sciences Corporation to conduct research into voter behavior. They found that Reagan's telegenic qualities meshed well with voter messaging, turning political issues into quick epigrammatic phrases. Would you believe that 15.1% of the California population is on welfare, for example? So it's just like this kind of aw shucks thing. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, I'm just an everyman guy. I'm just just your racist everyman neighbor. Yeah. I'm just your neighbor you say racist shit to all the time. So Jerry Brown's dad, Pat Brown. Yes. He's like, this is nothing. I, I actually... Reagan looks great. He'll be easy to beat because he has no political experience. Uh, He also had ties to things like the John Birch Society. Reagan had rescued a John Birch newspaper from insolvency a few years before. And John Birch Society, again, you said was like very, um, like fringe. They were considered like fringe Republicans. Yeah, they were like the most mainstream Republicans were like these guys. Even I, even William F. Buckley was like, whoa. Okay, yeah. wow. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, years earlier, he had helped the magazine keep afloat, as well as collaborating with other far-right groups in Southern California. A particular notable example of Reagan's ability to turn discussion of issues into every man-style sloganeering is his opposition in 60... 60- in the 66 campaign to the Rumford Fair Housing Act. Right, which again, you, pops up again, yeah. Uh, which it made it illegal to discriminate on the basis of race when selling property. This claim, when added to the fact that in 41, uh, Reagan had signed a racial covenant, agreeing not to sell property to non-whites. Reagan's rebuttal, and I feel like this is so telling, was, I was the first member of my family to ever own property. I never read the deed and would not have known how to interpret it, the legal terminology. Which is kind of brilliant, because it's basically like racism. I'm just a poor schmuck like you, your fellow citizen, politician. With with tens of millions of dollars and a legal team behind me, and also who says racist things often and saved the fringe radical racist newspaper from oblivion. Yeah, so that's... It's kind of like the George W. Bush presenting, though. It's like, or like, even Donald Trump. It's like, somehow you take these really rich guys with some sort of like social standing and social power mm-hmm. and you try to pass them off like they're just a guy you'd have a beer with yeah my, my parents always say george george w only wanted to play beach volleyball with those, those bikini clad girls which yes. is what happened during the financial crisis apparently oh yeah that makes sense yeah uh Moreover, Reagan was able to contrast his quaint Americanness with the rowdiness of the campus anti-war protests exploding across California, made famous mostly at Berkeley and UCLA. Addressing the protesters' constitutional right to freedom of speech, Reagan said, freedom of speech stops short of vulgarity and obscenity forced upon those that don't want to hear it, and certainly freedom of speech when some Americans are fighting and dying for their country must stop short of leading, lending comfort and aid to the enemy. Moreover, Plog and Holden found that the Berkeley free speech and anti-war movement 
and appealed to middle-class anxieties which Reagan could use to paint Brown as a permissive liberal out of touch with the concerns of real Americans. This should sound familiar to Every Republican mission uh, messaging that we've grown up hearing since the 80s. It's all taken this from the playbook of Reagan. Yeah, Reagan called the protesters in Berkeley beatniks, radicals, and filthy speech advocates, which honestly sounds like a good time. Yeah, I love that. Perfect. My people. And suggested that a morality code be imposed on faculty to force them to serve examples of good moral behavior and decency. Wow. So... I think it's really interesting that we know that Reagan's just like a normal guy in a lot of ways. He is not a pillar of morality or good behavior or decency. Like, if you want to talk about this family values shit, like, his wife was pregnant when they got married. He's been divorced. He is not what a lot of these other Republicans would think of as this, like, morally righteous, upstanding guy. And we saw the same thing happen with, like, Trump. Like, they have all these ideas about what morality is, but it's hypocritical. They're not, like, living this themselves. They're not, like, the family values guy, not actually. He's, like, a, a rich actor yeah i mean i think that's sort of the point in a weird way because i mean he was in gossip tabloids for decades like people knew yeah right like this wasn't like it came out that reagan like slept around a lot no yeah no it's true um and yeah all of this is why like you said the incumbent democrat pat brown who had defeated nixon in 1962 he really did not, yeah, view Reagan as a threat. He's like, Reagan's got no experience, and he joked that he was like, well, I was serving the public, Reagan was making bedtime for Bonzo. But people liked bedtime for Bonzo. People liked it, and they, yeah. they didn't count on that. And Reagan turned this, instead of being a liability, into an asset, and he did. He portrayed himself as an ordinary citizen who was fed up with a state government that had become inefficient and unaccountable. And the public responded very well to this. They thought that he appeared genuine, affable and self-deprecating he had kind of a self-deprecating sense of humor like for example when asked by a reporter how he would perform in office reagan replied i don't know i've never played a governor that i have to imagine that the like behavioral science corporation guys worked weeks on that shit oh yeah definitely yeah. and it's funny he told jokes on his campaign but reagan style jokes so making fun of poor people like one joke he told went like this a welfare recipient approaches her caseworker and says, I need an emergency supplement to my grant this month. I have a new baby who has no place to sleep, and I need the supplement to get a new crib. Oh, my goodness, replied the caseworker. I'll get you the grant right away. Tell me, where is the baby sleeping now? And the recipient responded, he's sleeping in the box the color television came in. This is very, if poor people don't want to be poor, why do they have iPhones? Yes, it is. I mean, also... It's just like something that would have not happened because in the 60s, a color television was extremely expensive. Mm-hmm. It would be like the equivalent of the joke today being like, where's the baby sleeping now? And the recipient responding, on the heated seat of my brand new Mercedes. You're just like, this isn't even remotely founded in reality. I'm sorry, that like, is legitimately a joke a conservative would tell today. Do you think so? That it's is a so joke ridiculous. a conservative would tell today. The number of times I have heard someone unfoundedly say, you know they show up to the welfare offices in their Mercedes to me. Wow. Like, which obviously I'm hanging with the wrong crowd. Yeah, yeah, I've never heard this before. Very, very ridiculous thing that he's, I mean, but that's the thing. He's like, I'm just an everyman like you who hates poor people and my neighbors. I have to point out, recall 3,000 pound breaker box just to keep his house running with all the GE gadgets, including 
three color televisions and a custom lighting system. Yes. Again, very expensive at yeah. the time. And uh, for all of this, Reagan won the election by nearly one million votes. Like, Pat Brown never saw this coming. And that means that in 1967, Reagan launches into two terms as governor, a position he would hold in California until 1975. So, what did Reagan as governor look like? Well, the first thing we're going to talk about is the hippie movement, California schools, and the protests. So this is the 1960s, right? We're obviously in a period of protest, and a lot of that was centered around college campuses, especially in the Bay Area in California. 1967 in particular, that was the summer of love in the Bay Area, and the hippie anti-war movement was in full swing, literally the year Reagan becomes governor. Vietnam War is happening, and students, and also other adults, honestly, everywhere, protesting U.S. involvement, right? Like, why was the United States sending our men to die to support the interest of France maintaining colonial control over Vietnam, a country that just wanted its own independence? It didn't make sense to people, no matter how hard the U.S. war machine tried to spin it to the American public. Though France was gone. No, 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 but yeah, yeah. the United States by this point, this is why we entered the war. We yeah, said, but no, no, now... France should own you, and then we're like, oh, fuck, now we're here. And now it was basically some Catholic guy. Yeah, so the USA was not only losing the propaganda war, but also losing the ground war by this point. Vietnamese resistance fighters were utilizing guerrilla techniques to push back the Americans who had invaded their country, and they were doing a good job. So Americans were dying, and people weren't stupid. They saw it. This was also the year of Abby Hoffman trying to levitate the Pentagon and setting up free stores in the San Francisco Haight-Ashbury neighborhood. This was just two years short of Woodstock. Okay, here's what... I, I don't... Abby Hoffman... You don't like the yippies. There's something just... No. Interesting. I don't, I don't know. like Abby Hoffman. He, I mean, he seems like a... He would be really annoying to be around. I think he had maybe not the strongest political ideology, but mm -hmm. the same way that Reagan is a good spokesperson for the new right, I think that Abby Hoffman had a saleability about his quality that was attractive to people that made them question things. He's like yeah. an entry point for left-leaning politics. And he oh. made it fun. And I think that's something that's missing from the left. Like, the Republicans make it fun to be a weird racist who hates your neighbors and wants Amazon to control the world. Like, mm -hmm. the left needs that. We need people who are like, no, it is fun and beautiful to celebrate life and want to defend people from the harms of evil corporate and government control and influence and the war machine. And, like, I just feel like we don't have that. And yeah. it's really serious. So on mm -hmm. a certain side, you're like, well, why should we? This is all serious shit and it's ruining people's lives. But people respond to it. It's a way to bring people in. And the closest we have are, like, Twitch streamers. Right. Uh, I mean, I feel, if I understand it, Abby Hoffman ended up becoming kind of like a like yoga personal improvement guy. I think he ended up going into seclusion and hiding for a oh, long time. Oh, I'm thinking the other yippie guy who was famous from the Chicago stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I actually know somebody who Abby Hoffman was her uh, godparent. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. And he mm -hmm. just kind of like kind of went into seclusion. So during the election, as confrontations were growing between UC Berkeley students in particular, as well as campus police and college administrators, uh, these things were popping up over the right to engage in political free speech on campus. Reagan was, yes, espousing the viewpoint that intellectual freedom came second to law and order. And the California university system, he said, was dominated by a minority, yes, of, like you said, David, malcontents, beatniks, filthy speech advocates who wanted more 
to do with rioting and anarchy than academic freedom. And Reagan was like, students do have a choice. Observe the rules or get out. So he demanded, even during this, the resignation of UC Chancellor Clark Kerr. His message was embraced by some Californians who later became Richard Nixon's silent majority, right, of quiet, law-abiding citizens who were fed up with the antics of the new left radicals. Following the election, right after, Reagan revised his theme of, like, this moral vigilance against communism and started to demand a law and order in California, especially over the Bay Area. So six months after Reagan takes office in 1967, he writes a letter to Glenn Dumkey, the chancellor of San Francisco State College, one of California's largest public institutions. And also, fun fact, you remember I used to live in that house by SF State. Oh, I love that house. Right, it was cool. It was like an Edwardian and it had the full basement. Yeah, that was cool. And it was like a ton of people who lived there. No, I, I slept on your couch once and did not actually sleep because it was just party central. Yeah, yeah it was like a three-bedroom house, but between 10 and 20 people lived there at any time, and we yeah. threw shows in the basement. Yeah, that was right next to SF State. So, Dunkey serves as the public face of the state college system, and he was this, like, staunch opponent of radical student and faculty demonstrations. So, Reagan sees in him an ally. So in his letter to Dumkey, Reagan criticizes this liberal activism on campuses and condemns, quote, these people and this trash on campuses as well as the excuse of academic freedom and freedom of expression and allowing protests and demonstrations to go on. He writes, we wouldn't tolerate this kind of language in front of our families. And he urges Dumkey to lay down some rules of conduct, promising you'll have all the backing I can give you. Uh, also, Important to note, Clark Kerr, this UC president, he was fired three weeks after Reagan took office. And this act was like the culmination of a process that began a long time before. Like, then FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover tried to persuade Kerr to crack down hard on the Berkeley students involved in the 1964 free speech movement. Hoover alleged it was a front for communist sympathizers. He was not able to convince Kerr. And Hoover turned to who? gubernatorial candidate Reagan, a rising conservative star, to help him. So Reagan and the FBI interacted throughout his campaign, before he was even elected, about how to deal with Kerr and the student protests. And shortly after he won the election, Kerr was gone. And what followed next was called Bloody Thursday. So in May 1969, this was a low point in the relationship between Reagan and UC Berkeley, and students and activists had begun to attempt to transform a vacant plot of university property into something called People's Park. Yeah, so a little bit earlier, on April 13th, 69, UC Berkeley Chancellor Earl Chite, Chite? Is that I think so, yeah. yeah. Okay, that's fine. Uh, announced the university would be building a soccer field on the plot that People's Park was on. Reagan, who remember or had campaigned on quelling the tide of campus activism regarding the park as a haven of communist sympathizers, protesters, and sex deviants, asked the California Highway Patrol to clear the park, which is real weird. Really, really weird. So, activists were like, yeah, we're going to turn this into People's Park, and in attempting to head off the activists, the universe then engaged a fencing company accompanied by 250 police to then erect a chain link fence around the plot of land at 4 a.m. on May 15, 1969. And five hours later, a rally was called on Sproul Plaza to protest the action. So Resource, which is a current UC Berkeley reference guide for new students, relates the story of how Reagan intervened, sending in the National Guard. So they say, the rally, which drew 3,000 people, soon turned into a riot as the crowd moved down Telegraph Avenue through the park. 
towards the park. That day, known as Bloody Thursday, three students suffered punctured lungs, another a shattered leg, 13 people were hospitalized with gunshot, oh yeah, shotgun wounds, and one police officer was stabbed. James Rector, who was watching the riot from a rooftop, was shot by police gunfire and died four days later. At the request of the Berkeley mayor, Governor Ronald Reagan declared a state of emergency and sent 2,200 National Guard troops into Berkeley. Some of these guardsmen were even Cal students. At least one young man had participated in the riots, been shot at by the police, gotten patched up, then returned to his dorm to find a notice to report for guard duty. In the following days, approximately 1,000 people were arrested, 200 were booked for felonies, and 500 were taken to Santa Rita Jail. Well, by some models, Reagan responded to... In to all of these issues going on in college campuses by increasing funding to higher education in California. By other models, it showed that he cut the spending, which I think is really interesting. And I think it, it's worth noting at this point that the UC system was like the crown jewel of like national education. Like everyone was like, this is the best system for California residents. There was a nominal fee, but the UC system was basically free up till this point. And this starts like the long process of privatization of college campuses in the U.S. more generally, and the move to tuition. And so if you're wondering why your tuition is so expensive, it starts here. It starts here with Reagan. I mean, also when they look at ways in which funding was increased to higher education under Reagan, it, it has to do with how you look at it per capita. Like yeah. overall, the budget for higher education did go up, but it, it really went down when you look at per student spending, just because California was becoming more populous and inflation was happening and things were getting more expensive. Yeah. So Reagan increased taxes while cutting government spending, especially on social programs in order to balance the budgets. Sales taxes were increased from two to five percent and income taxes on top earners were increased from seven to 10 percent. On the issue of education, as Gary Klaubau puts it, Reagan slashed spending not just on higher education. Throughout his tenure as governor, he consistently and effectively opposed additional funding for basic education. The result was painful increases in local taxes and the deterioration of California's public schools, which were at the time, according to Klapa, considered some of the best in the country. Uh, moreover, in regards to higher education, Reagan cut funding for or it, claiming taxpayers should not fund intellectual curiosity, which is... Wild. Also, such a, a change from how Cold War practices had gone up to that point. Because up to that point, when the Cold War was raging, politicians were like, the USSR is rapidly developing, and it's because they are investing money in education, and they're getting more engineers. They're getting more people who can send people into space. So originally, the way even conservatives thought about the Cold War was that they needed to invest a lot of money in education so they could basically have more engineers and weapons builders. This is a, a very funny off-topic story, but an old philosophy professor of mine got a full ride through his graduate school on, like, a defense department and uh, scholarship, and the idea was that he was supposed to study, like, philosophy of math and, like, logic and shit, but he discovered the college he went to didn't have that kind of philosophy, so he ended up doing ancient Greek. <laughs> so the defense department paid for him to study ancient Greek? Yes. That's so good. I love that. What a useless degree. I'm so happy. <laughs> I love it. Um, um, this meant a, a move from a basically free higher education system in the UCs, at one point the model college system in the country, to a tuition model. In essence, this started the privatization model 
all that was expanded under Clinton. This is really, really interesting to me because you can really see how all of this happened because of a grudge. Yeah. He literally got into a fight with college kids and the college kids were winning. And then he was like, fuck it, I'm sending in the National Guard and I'm making college super expensive now. Though it's also just in line with that neoconservative, like, neoliberal privatize everything. Right. We're going to have private colleges. We're going to cut the public spending. And this also reflects the ways in which Reagan was just a law and order governor. Like, he really did rebrand himself as this. Like, you know about the thing with the L.A. Free Press? Tell me. Okay, so when underground publication, the Los Angeles Free Press, published the names of 80 undercover police officers involved in narcotics operations during Reagan's governorship... Uh, Reagan promptly made publishing the names of police officers a misdemeanor crime. I mean, that's so not the making it a crime. That's so cool. cool. They did that. They were like, "Uh, uh, absolutely not. You're not undercover anymore. You have been outed." And there's a lot of different ways too that he cut funding. One of the more interesting ones, I think, is the mental health thing. Like in a bizarre turn of events, Reagan actually in the end ended up increasing mental health care funding in California, but it did not start out that way. Like, one month prior to the election, President Carter had signed the Mental Health Systems Act, which had proposed to continue the Federal Community Mental Health Centers program. The act also included a provision for federal grants for projects for the prevention of mental illness and the promotion of positive mental health. Uh, Reagan, of course, though, cut this. Yep. In his first year in office, Reagan proposed cuts to California's mental health system. In 67, this meant that the Department of Mental Hygiene, which... uh, What a name. I kind of like it, actually. Uh, Clean it out in there. Floss it. Floss my brain. Just brush that brain. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Was reduced by about one-sixth or 3,700 employees. That's massive. Yeah. So even before Reagan, California had been in the long process of moving mental health patients from larger psychiatric inpatient facilities to more decentralized, quote-unquote, board-and-care facilities. Prior to Reagan's election, the California legislature had passed the Lanterman-Petra-Short Act, which had effectively ended all but the most extreme cases of involuntary commitment. His budget and staffing cuts to the DMH accelerated a trend towards privatization. By 1969, those board and care facilities were acting, according to one report, as a small, long-term state hospital wards, often operating as for-profit ventures. We the, we see it again That's the and privatization. Again. Yep. yep. Cut, cut spending on the government and make private businesses come do it instead. In the case of one of these groups, the so-called Beverly Ventures, a for-profit chain of mental health board and care homes, five vi- members of its board had direct ties to Reagan. Wow! The chairman was vice president of a Reagan fundraising dinner. The other four had been part of fundraising efforts for the Reagan campaign or had directly given undisclosed campaign donations to Reagan's So basically campaign. what we're seeing is that Reagan is like, I'm going to balance the budget, I'm going to cut social spending on mental health care things, and I'm going to just give, hand over the business of this to these board and care homes that just happen to be for profit and run by my friends who helped me get elected. Yep. So this privatization led to poor living conditions among the board and care er, facilities and an increase in homelessness in California. As E. Fuller Torrey put it regarding the mentally ill in San Jose, some patients left the board and care homes because of the poor living conditions, whereas others were evicted when their symptoms of their illness returned because they were not receiving medication, but both scenarios resulted in homelessness. By 1973, the San Jose area was described as having discharged patients living in Skid Row, wandering aimlessly in the streets. Yeah, this is so interesting. Like, 
Reagan had this in common with Richard Nixon, which is that people argued they were the product of this, like, Southern California culture that associated psychiatry with communism? That, like, in a, like... I don't... Like, it just... They were just like, no, psychiatry bad equals communism. But what Reagan did not anticipate is how being a tough-on-law-and-order kind of governor would end up overlapping with mental health cuts. Because, yeah, in places like San Jose... They started reporting what they called a mass invasion of mental patients, which like not the most sensitive language, but that's what they called it, following cuts to the system. So in 1972, Mark Abramson, a young psychiatrist working for San Mateo County, published a landmark paper entitled The Criminalization of Mentally Disordered Behavior. Abramson claimed that because the new statute made it difficult to get patients admitted to psychiatric hospitals, police regard arrest and booking into jail as a more reliable way of securing involuntary detention of mentally disordered persons. So Abramson's paper was the first clear description of the increase of mentally ill persons in jails and prisons, an increase that would grow markedly in subsequent years. And a study of 301 patients that were discharged from a Napa State Hospital between 1972 and 1975 found that 41% of them had been arrested. So Reagan ultimately ended up restoring the funds for mental health care because it became an issue of law and order because Mm -hmm. it just shifted the burden onto policing. Some people also speculate uh, that it could have been because California had an epidemic of serial killers or like random violent murders tied to mental health episodes throughout the 60s and 70s. And there might actually be a tiny bit of truth to that. Like more likely though, it's just the mundanity of what happens without social services in a community. Like the burden has to fall somewhere. And in this case, it fell on families. And if families weren't able to adequately care for people because they weren't qualified to do so, it fell then on the police step in. Yeah. yeah. And they're like, we got a jail we can throw them in, no problem. And pretty soon, yes, policing just became the normal response to mental health issues, which we still see today. No, I mean, any walking around Skid Row in Los Angeles will show you exactly that. It's a lot of people who could not get mental health care. Yes, and they had nowhere to go. And I even had somebody that I dated in San Francisco who had a schizophrenic sister who was shot dead by SFPD in the middle of a mental health episode. It was very, very, very horrifying. And you see all the signs of people where they'll live in a house in a community. And, like, I'm sure you've seen signs on the internet where people will put them up around their loved ones' houses. Like, severely autistic, like, man lives here. Please do not shoot. He does not understand verbal commands, you know? And people have come to recognize that just being in some way, like, what people consider mentally unhealthy or, like, neurodivergent or whatever makes you an increased target of policing. And it's true the majority of violent crime is not committed by the mentally ill and the majority of mentally ill people are not violent. It is worth noting that sometimes people in episodes do react violently. Like, I say this myself as a mentally ill person who struggles with violent impulses. Like, this is a major thing I've had to deal with to try to work through my anger issues. My impulse is often just physical aggression. And there were, yes, some incidents of violence that came along with this in California when Reagan was governor and cutting the funding to these mental health care facilities. Like, in 1970, John Frazier, responding to the voice of God, killed a prominent surgeon and his wife and their two young sons and his secretary. Frazier's mother and wife had previously sought to have him hospitalized for his condition, but were not able to. In 1972, Herbert Mullen, responding to auditory hallucinations, killed 13 people over three months. He had been hospitalized three times, but then was released without further treatment. 
1973, Charles Soper killed his wife, three children, and himself two weeks after having been discharged from a state hospital. And in 1973, Edmund Kemper killed his mother and her friend and was charged with killing six others. Eight years earlier, he had killed his grandparents because he was tired of their company, but at age 21 had been released from the state hospital without further treatment. So this is the thing that conservatives respond to. And I've talked about this before, like why conservatives are so quick to dismiss mental illness. And I say because conservative ideology is rooted in fear, right? Yeah. So if you are like, oh, I am experiencing mental illness, if they are not afraid of you, they don't see it as valid. They think you're just doing it for attention. So conservatives respond to things that frighten them. And if you're like, oh, for example, I have obsessive compulsive disorder. That mm-hmm. usually doesn't manifest in violent episodes that they would be afraid of. Or if you're like, I have ADHD. They're like, well, ADHD doesn't often come with things that would make somebody prone potentially to increase violence. Sometimes it does. You know, whatever the case. So that's why they're so dismissive. And they're like, that's not real. You're, you're making it up or it's not a big deal. But the second somebody is like, oh, I'm schizophrenic and having an episode and can't tell what's reality and I think that somebody might be harming me right now and I don't know how to respond, all of a sudden conservatives are like, this is a real mental illness and I am freaked out. And basically, Reagan cutting all these mental health services meant that it had to get to this point where people in the most need of care were actually frightening people. For him to step in as this law and order guy and be like, oh, fuck, cutting mental health actually did create a law and order issue. Yeah, I mean, I... uh... I, I know what you mean. I have definitely had the, oh, oh, let me talk about depression. You know, sometimes you just need to think positively. Right. <laughs> You're like, it, it, no, it is not the same. But um, people dismiss it, unless, especially conservative people, unless it's something that they're like, oh, shit, that's really intense and I'm afraid of you right now. Then they're like, it's serious. I mean, I think they're, to be generous to this sort of ideologically position there is this weird thing where it is consonant with the kind of like personal responsibility bootstrappy shit because every person who has said the just look on the bright side kind of nonsense has been like i feel sad sometimes too right (laughs) uh and so i think the demarcation is like you know there's unreason and then there's madness Right, and madness is the big scary thing that we just have to shunt to one side so that we can't deal with, or like if we can't deal with it, we need to put them in a hospital where we don't see them. Or we need to put them in a jail cell if the hospital's not available. Which is increasingly just what we do. That is what we do. That is totally what we do. But yeah, it is true. And I'm like, oh, I have like OCD and ADHD and CPTSD. People are like, okay, yeah, whatever. And I'm like, sometimes I have violent impulses to run people over with my car and I find it difficult to control. They're like, what the fuck? And I'm like, hmm. If you're ever struggling to get your medication filled. (laughs) (laughs) So in the end, when this happened, Reagan allocated more money ultimately to community health programs. He was like, oh shit. No, 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 put it back. I fucked up. I fucked up. And a lot of these community health programs were actively being pioneered in California at the time. So state expenditures for mental health in the end actually doubled under the Reagan administration. And this is the thing overall is that you learned that the tax increases that Reagan made during his administration as governor were some of the largest in U.S. or in California history. And U.S. history. Yeah. And so it just becomes where it's just like, okay, you kind of sucked at it. And so you just had to spend more money in the end. 
Exactly. And yeah. I think about, it's like the libertarian bear town, where they're like, we'll build the libertarian town of our dreams, but then it had no garbage service because no one wanted to pay for it, so the town became overrun with bears. It's like he is playing a fantasy world where he's like, I'm going to set up what I think is perfect. And then it's like, well, you just ran into all these problems people had already solved. And if you would have just listened, you would have understood why you couldn't just cut funding to mental health and just be like, well, just throw them all in prisons. Yeah. Like it doesn't, it's not working. And the prisons aren't set up for it. And it's really fucking inhumane, first of all. Uh, And second of all, people's families aren't equipped to deal with this. They aren't professionals. They can't help. And like, third of all, institutionalization isn't necessarily the right way to handle this too. It's just kind of another form of a jail. And like, you need to come up with a flexible and innovative solution that meets people where they are. And that involves putting more money into researching programs and trying to come up with new things, not going back in time and being like, we'll just do nothing. Yeah, I mean, like, obviously the Reagan solution was the private board and care facilities. But that also didn't work, because when people didn't have access to their medication... They got kicked out. Right, because yeah. they were acting erratically. But I think, right, like, it seems like the board and the private board and care facilities are answering a question that nobody asked which is how should how can we make money off of this <laughs> right yeah which yeah. i guess some people were the beverly e group or whatever the fuck they were called yeah, his they were definitely asking that yeah. question how do we make money off this <laughs> right but all of this is kind of consistent him hemming and hawing and ending up spending more money somehow on education while providing less funding per student or taking away the funding for mental health care stuff and then adding more back, it it all kind of actually works out into a practical ideology for, like, how his governorship went. Because it turns out that for all of his new right talking points, his policy was actually a super mixed bag. Like, in his time as governor, he obviously did some really bad things, the stuff we talked about earlier, but he also instituted reforms in the state's welfare program where he boasted, he bragged about cutting nearly half a million poor people off from welfare. He also cut a ton of social spending. Um, A lot of the programs that were hard won that were benefiting low-income communities, especially during the war on poverty, like programs for low-income black youth, all of these were cut. He also cut state work programs in favor of privatization, yes, filling in the gaps. Like, he slowed the growth of the state workforce, which had increased nearly 50% during the eight years of his Democratic predecessor, Pat Brown. He did all these things where you're like, well, you cut social spending, you increased room for privatization, you harmed poor people dramatically. These were bad moves. But then, like, weirdly, he did kind of good things, too, that his Republican supporters did not like. So he managed to erase that substantial budget deficit that he inherited from the Brown administration. But yes, like you said, David, he did so through the largest tax increase in history of any state at that time. Like, not what we would think of as a Republican conservative who ran a platform of cutting taxes. And it's literally because, yes, he started to run the numbers and was like, oh, shit, that's actually impossible. Like, this cannot be done. And nearly every major state tax rose substantially during Reagan's years in Sacramento. The state share of sales tax was increased from 3% to 4.75%. Corporate taxes were nearly doubled from 5.5% to 9%. The tax on banks went from 9.5% to 13%. And the maximum tax on personal income taxes rose from 7% to 11%. And brackets were narrowed down to put more people in a higher tax bracket. These all seems like progressive tax moves. And at first he said he had to raise taxes because of the mismanagement of Pat Brown. But when it actually worked to help fund the government better, he was like, none of you trusted me. This was my plan all along. I mean, I, I have some thoughts about maybe the sales tax one. 
What are your thoughts on the sales tax? Sales tax is regressive, right? I'm not sure. Because it genuine, it, if I understand this correctly, it tends to impact poor people. Oh. The point of sales stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. That totally makes um, sense to me. I've never thought of that before. That would be a good full episode to do on its own. Sales tax? Sales okay. tax, yeah. Uh, Lou Cannon, who covered the governor for the San Jose Mercury News and later wrote a book on like Reagan's rise from governorship to president, said he gave conservative speeches, but his actions were just more pragmatic. Reagan's budget was, in fact, more than twice as high as Pat Brown's had been. I just want to say, pragmatic after the damn fact. After the fact. He broke things, and he was like, oh, shit, we broke it. Put it back, put it back. It's fucked up. The, those tax increases were the giant roll of duct tape Reagan used to fix, not kind of. I mean, because California is still a crazy well, deregulated. Well, it with duct tape. You didn't yeah. really fix it. Yeah, yeah. That, I, think, I think the metaphor's great. He fixed it with duct tape. Uh, yeah, under Reagan, the annual state budget increased from $4.6 billion to $10.2 billion. And yeah, sure, some of it was inflation, but some of it was because of spending increases in some programs that conservatives had once vowed to cut or abolish. And one example of this is actually environmentally. Like, he signed the California Environmental Quality Act, which is a law that Republicans now hate because they're like, well, this slows and sometimes kills these new building projects we're trying to profit off of. Um, and it's weird because when he was campaigning, he was not campaigning on an environmental platform. He actually said, a tree's a tree. How many do you need to look at? This is, that is the most Reagan logic ever. Yes, totally. Yeah. It so is. But he then chose William Penn Mott, a nationally known parks director, as director of state parks. He then picked Norman Ike Livermore, a lumberman who was also a Sierra Club member, as his director of resources. And together, Livermore and Mott compiled a generally enviable environmental record for the Reagan administration. There was a total of 145,000 acres, including 41 miles of ocean frontage, that were added on to the state park system. There were also two underwater park preserves off the coast that were set aside, as well as bike trails, boat harbors, urban parks. And a major bond was issued for park development, and that ended up getting supported. There was also the endangered middle fork of the Feather River that was preserved. And he also did something that shocked everybody in regards to the Eel River. So the Eel River was one of California's few remaining, like, wild rivers. And it was supposed to be this, like, really beautiful stream where steelheads would spawn. And according to the Washington Post, when the Army Corps of Engineers, backed by the state water bureaucracy, came forward with this idea of the high dam at Dos Rios, nearly everyone was like, well, yeah, that's going to happen and the river's going to get fucked up. But at the time, the water bureaucracy in California was considered, like, even more powerful than the highway lobby, right? Okay. So it didn't seem like there was much anybody could do, and it didn't seem like there was anything that Reagan wanted to do. There was huge battalions of people fighting over this. There were Reagan contributors in Southern California who were like, yeah, 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 who cares? This is better for business. But there were also, yes, a handful of Reagan staffers, including Livermore, right? And a few conservationists from Round Valley, which would have been flooded if they built the dam there. And also some remnants of native tribes that had been herded into the valley by army troops in like the late 1800s. And they were like, hey, Round Valley contains grave sites of the Yuki Indian tribe. And some archaeologists were like, this is really important. And the grave sites and some of the valley land were like uh, the native peoples, according to treaties. And they were like, please don't do this. And this is the wildest thing in the world. Reagan turned down the Dos Rios Dam and he said, we've broken too many damn treaties. We're not going to flood them, the Indians, out. What? 
It's just so... Okay, so we got punching the Nazi and this. We got two things so far. But his, this is what I mean. We're like, Reagan does not have an ideology. He's going with whatever the people in the room are telling him. And it looks like he accidentally put Norman Ike Livermore in a lot of rooms. So when yeah. Livermore was like, we can't do that. He's like, we can't do that. Mm-mm. Yeah. So it's just wild. He also made a bill, signed a bill that made it easier for women to get abortions. Yeah, in 1967, the year the measure was enacted, there were 518 legal abortions in California. But in 1978, the last year that figures were available for, there were 171,982 abortions in California hospitals and clinics. And the total number of abortions performed from 1968 through 1978 was 1.2 million. So there is a chance that Ronald Reagan made it easy for me as a Californian to get an abortion, which blows my mind. I think we got to have one of those signs on like the like I-5 or whatever coming into California with like Ronald Reagan's picture and like one of those tickers. Yeah, just like good and bad. No, no, just the abortions. Oh, just, just like, the abortions. Just oh, yeah, going yeah, yeah, yeah. up every time someone has an abortion in California and just like, you're yeah. welcome yes. next to it. Yeah, you're welcome. Ronald Reagan got yeah. you your abortion. Apparently, Ronald Reagan later was like, I regret doing that. But like, I don't think he has a real ideology. So I don't yeah. think he actually cares. I, I'm sure he regretted it as a like politically expedient thing when the moral majority became his base. Yes, I'm yeah. sure that's it. So when you look at these things and you're like, why was this man such a contradiction as governor? Uh, experts say that, yeah, he was politically and publicly very ideologically right, according to everything said, but his actions just didn't match up with his words. Like, he entered the governorship with his ideological fervor, but most likely he soon realized that politically he had a compromise and this actually resulted in this really mild, almost bipartisan governorship. Like, it was the same style of leadership, though, that he would bring to the presidency. He left most of the day-to-day -day business of government to just, like, assistants and department heads to figure out. Hence Livermore being like, we're not flooding out the Indians. And yeah, like, I mean, we're not flooding out the Indians. Okay. It's too bad Livermore wasn't there instead of Oliver North a few <laughs> years <laughs> well, later. We to the president. Exactly. <laughs> He was like, I'll just uh, focus on these large issues of policy, but we see he kind of floundered in executing them. He followed this really rigid schedule that his aides prepared and typed up for him daily, so he kind of just went where people told him to go. And according to U.S. Attorney General Ed Meese, he governed on the basic principles that he campaigned on. Business-like methods, making sure the government did not unnecessarily expand, welfare reform, those kinds of things that he had talked about when he ran for office in 1966. But... Those kinds of changes just probably realistically ended up being harder to implement than he thought. And he honestly didn't really know what he was doing. So like Lynn Knopfseiger, his communications director at the time, said, we weren't only amateurs, we were novice amateurs. That is a great endorsement for the Reagan years as governor. Yeah. Novice they, amateurs. <laughs> they had some ideas. They were like, oh, shit, this is more complicated than we thought. They outsourced a bunch of stuff to some department heads and aides who thankfully were like, yeah, yeah, this is going to be fine. We're just going to push this through. And anything that was like some lofty, big ambition they had, they just weren't skilled enough or competent enough to execute. Some of it. It does feel like the privatization of public institutions, be they mental health or colleges and schools, that feels like the like the real underlying conservative ideology. Every other thing feels very much window dressing for conservatism. Yeah, I think like he did a lot of lip service. I mean, he's kind of a 
marketing man. Remember the yeah. time he spent at GE, they told him, they're like, you're selling the job. And I think he spent a lot of time selling the job of him being governor. And when it came time to, to actually govern, he was like, what the fuck? This is like so much shit that he had no experience in whatsoever. So in a lot of ways, Pat Brown was right. Well, Pat Brown was governing the state fine is uh, not great whatever yeah. he was doing he was a, he was gray davis of the 1960s yeah he was doing the job yeah. uh yeah ronald reagan was doing bedtime for bonzo like and people love bedtime for bonzo people love bedtime for bonzo so in 1968 he kind of half-heartedly throws his hat in the ring for the republican presidential nomination but he finishes third behind nixon and Nelson Rockefeller. And I think this might have to do with his particular brand of republicanism. Maybe the masses weren't ready for it. The Sunbelt conservatism stuff. All the Pat Bircher, like, Orange County shit. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I do feel like even the, yeah, the Orange County republicanism is still viewed as, like, very elite to a lot of people. You think so? Yeah, I think it's kind of like Wu-Anon. Wu-Anon? Yeah. Oh, you don't know what Wu-Anon is. So you know what QAnon is. Oh, is this uh, the... Okay, tell me about it. So, Wuanon is the conservatives who are like, I'm vegan, I drink smoothies, I do yoga, because everything is so about individual accountability that I don't believe in modern medicine, and I believe if anything is wrong with your body, it's on you to fix it yourself. So, you need to pull yourself up by your little health bootstraps and fix your stupid body with, uh, you know, like, those little herbal... What are they called? Like, the herbal droppers? Oh, um... The oils. The tinctures? Yeah, like the tinctures of, like, natural oils, right? I... And then you also just need to, like, eat vegan to fix it, you dum-dum. And then you just need to yoga your way into better health. And anybody who doesn't do that just, like, is a drain on society and maybe you deserve to die. Possibly like, a welfare queen. <laughs> possibly a welfare queen. So these would be, like, the Wuhan people, but that's, like, a lot of the people in Orange County. Like, their brand yeah. of individualism, like interacts with this like brand of like hip luxury like if you listen to the nancy reagan episode it's kind of like that nancy reagan thing right i think you know we mentioned somewhere or the people who uh supported rick caruso one of those people gwyneth paltrow exactly it's like goop conservatism exactly um so he does not get the presidential nomination and in 1975 his governorship ends and he does not, though, run for another term because he once again, yes, has his eyes on the presidency, which we'll get into in our next episode. All right. Do you have anything to say before we wrap up part one of our Reagan episodes? I mean, f- fuck that guy. I, you know, suicidal tendency said it best. I shot Reagan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh... You know, it's really interesting. I think I was not prepared for how ideologically vapid he was. I mean, I I think the thing is, right, conservatism as this sort of, like, social thing, all of the Sunbelt conservatism, the, like, moral majority shit, it's real and it affects people in really miserable, fucked up ways. Yes. For the political, economic power structure, I've always gotten the impression that it is a sideshow to the privatization of, like, anything that might make our lives better materially. I think this is true. I mean, like, I I think the most shocking thing to me is the abortion thing, because I feel Mm -hmm. like Republicans have always known that if you want to make poor people vote in support of 
big business interests, the way you do it is by saying you hate abortion. Yeah. So I think, I guess for me, it's sort of like the bit, he did the big business thing. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's the, when people lionize Reagan today, no one's talking about Iron Contra. No one is talking about, like, they're talking about Reaganomics. They're talking about privatization. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that it is something that, I think what we're going to really see in episode two that's interesting is he works out the kinks of his ideology a little bit in his presidency, and he surrounds himself with people who are maybe more ideologically cohesive. And Mm -hmm. I think that's really why he's able to do more damage. Yeah, he finds the real assholes of conservatism. And he brings them onto his team, into his camp, and they're like, we'll tell you what to do, bud. And he's like, okay, let's go. Or rather, they say, we'll handle it. Eat your damn jelly beans. Exactly. (laughs) All right, so that's the end of part one on Ronald Reagan. Stay tuned. Next week, we'll be coming back with part two, where we get into the presidential years. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Pick Me Up, I'm Scared. If you would like to join us on Patreon, you can find us there at patreon.com slash pickmeupimscared. For $3 a month, you can access bonus content there. But if 3 bucks a month is too much for you to spend right now, we totally get it and we're just happy you're here. As always, you can find the sources for this week's episode just by scrolling down a bit in the description.